Good morning, and welcome to this brand new December end of the year uh, episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your, or we are your co-hosts, Dave Kale and Wallace Kale, sitting on my lap, coming to you from Pasadena, California. Uh, and I am joined, ah, there's Wally saying good morning. And I am joined, as always, by the illustrious Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and the very, very sharp-witted Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and we're excited. This is an especially exciting episode because I can talk again. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're, and we're going to spend a lot, we're going to spend, in addition to important topics like the Doom of Mandos, we're going to spend a lot of time on the very, very important topic of, you know, sort of the intricacies of the biology of Valerian <laughs> and how things were able to grow without light. That's right. That's right. A very pressing topic. Yeah. So how are you guys doing this morning? Good. Pretty good. Good, yeah. Getting excited, coming through to. Uh, it's, it's sort of been finally dawning on me that we're almost done with 2017. You know, I've been kind of starting to prepare myself to, you know, write 2018 for the date and stuff. And it's, uh, uh, you know, the closer we get to to 2020, the more it begins to kind of feel a little bit surreal. I have to, I have to admit. But anyway, so apart from like me, like kind of reconciling myself to the date as we move forward in uh, in December, I'm fine. Uh, I'm fine. Things are good. All right. Well, today, just I want to before we begin, I want to make a couple quick announcements. Uh, announcement number one is uh, a, a reminder, well, f- number one and two, really, to remind you guys of our two events that are coming up. Uh, and uh, we have some deadlines that will be uh, uh, coming up on those two fairly soon. Uh, one, of course, is TexMoot. The first one is TexMoot happening Saturday, January 13th. Uh, now, that's still almost a month away, but we actually are we're going to have to... Um, uh, close registration for that before too long, uh, by about the end of December uh, at the latest, I think. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, your last occasion to sign up for that is, is closer than it might seem. Uh, so certainly if you are you know anywhere accessible, it's going to be in Fort Worth, Texas uh, on Saturday the 13th. If uh, that's at all accessible to you, uh, I hope you will consider coming. It's going to be it's going to be really really fun. I've been working on you know, doing a lot of thinking about my uh, uh, my my keynote talk that I'm going to be giving down there. The theme of that ta- of that uh, conference is stories for the refreshment of the spirit. It's a, a consideration of of literature, stories, and healing basically. Uh, and it's going to be really neat. I'm going to, I'm going to be on a, a panel, for instance. We have a, a panel of a number of different experts in different subjects uh, where we're going to be talking about the connection between stories and healing from several ways. So uh, we have a literature person who's me. Uh, we have a linguist on the panel. We have a psychologist on the panel. Um, we have a, a doctor, I think, on the panel. I mean, it's going to be from like a, a bunch of different perspectives, thinking about both stories about healing and ways in which story, stories actually um, help you know bring healing to people and, and encourage healing. Um, so we're going to be sort of thinking about it in a bunch of different ways. And in my talk, I'm going to be talking about uh, my, my talk is going to be called 
Release from Bondage. I'm going to be focusing on the Baron and Luthien story is going to be kind of at the heart of it, but I'm going to start off by talking about escape, you know, the uh, Tolkien's principle of escape from unfairy stories, then thinking about uh, Baron and Luthien, then thinking about the response to Baron and Luthien that we see in The Lord of the Rings and the way that the Lord of the Rings characters relate to the story of Baron and Luthien. And then I'm going to, from there, actually move on and talk about uh, C.S. Lewis and the end of the last battle, especially. Uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to, um, uh, to the, to the, to the talk there. And, uh, uh, the whole conference should be really, really neat, a really cheap one day conference, uh, that will be, uh, really fun to attend. So I hope you can make it. If not, don't worry. Hopefully we will soon have a regional event near you, uh, so that, uh, we can include as many people as possible. Uh, I've been really excited about that. So yeah, textmoot.org is a place you can get more information about it. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, please do, if you're thinking of coming, make sure to register sometime here in the next 10 days or so. So, uh, And then MythMoot. Uh, the uh, deadline that will be coming soon, not quite yet, but soon, uh, is uh, the early bird registration for that. So there's a price reduction for early bird re- registration, but that won't be up forever. So uh, be, uh, be, be, be keeping that in mind as well. The date's June 21st to 24th, uh, in Leesburg, Virginia. Again, same location as last year. Uh, MythMoot is going to be awesome. So, uh, I hope that you guys can, can join us for that as well. Third announcement. Yeah. Excited. yeah. Are, you, are, you, are, are you coming this year, Dave? I'm, I'm planning on it. Nice. Trying to sell, trying to sell truce on the idea of, uh, of her coming and bringing Wally too, but we'll see if that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. I'm also uh, I'm trying to recruit. I have at least one other one other colleague, one other computer science colleague who's interested in uh, who's a fantasy literature fan and interested in uh, computational literature stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to get her to come as well. So. Cool. But yes, other very high likelihood I will be there this time. Excellent. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. That'd be awesome. It'd be and uh, it would be wonderful if uh, Teresa and Wally could come as well. Uh, yeah. You know, that, Yes, I'm working on it. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I know that's a that's a it's a tough. I mean, I've made that trip. It's a tough trip with uh, with little ones. You know, the the East Coast to West Coast flight with young children is no walk in the park. But um, but it would be great to have you guys there. We'll just cave and give him an iPhone. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was uh, I remember making an electronics purchase explicitly for the sake of uh, you know uh, transcontinental flights <laughs> with my young child. Yeah, exactly. Um, the third announcement is uh, spring courses. So our spring twenty eighteen uh, courses course registration is open. Just wanted to kind of draw your attention uh, to the lineup we have. As you can see, we have six courses that we're running uh, this coming spring. Um, we have our Beowulf through Tolkien course, uh, my my Canterbury Tales course, um, the Harry uh, Amy Sturgis's Harry Potter course, and also my Tolkien's poetry class. Which was so. This is the first time I think we've uh, rerun the Tolkien's poetry class since I first taught it, uh, and that's uh, that class was so much fun going through Tolkien's like entire. I did pretty much every short poem Tolkien ever wrote. Um, 
that it, not the epic poems. Like I didn't do the way of Lathian and the Fall of Arthur and things like that. Uh, just the short poems. Uh, but uh, but that was so much fun. We also have two brand new courses that we're running this uh, spring. One introduction to Germanic philology two uh, for our uh, all of our hardcore philologists, of whom we have many uh, who have been wanting a larger Germanic philology uh, segment. So uh, uh, some advanced Germanic philology uh, is uh, is uh, is is going to be really cool. And then a new science fiction uh, class, literature, film, and techno-culture, looking at both science fiction, uh, literature, and film, and the relationship between those and culture that will be uh, by Dr. Chad Andrews, who's uh, our newest uh, lecturer on that. So uh, a new science fiction class is uh, is really fun. So uh, anyway... Those are our courses. So you can check out our website, uh, signumuniversity.org, and uh, and uh, you know get uh, information. This uh, this is just a, what I have here on the screen. It's just a screenshot taken from our future courses page, which you can see in our courses tab there uh, on signumuniversity.org. So please do check that out. You can you can uh, both of course enroll in our program uh, for our certificate programs or our master's degree program, or you can uh, audit our classes on a couple different levels as well for people who just want to take the courses uh, for fun and personal enrichment rather than for credit or degree. Uh, when you say every short poem, you mean like Hobbit drinking songs? Everyone. Yep. Yep. Walking songs. Everyone. Oh, fantastic. Everyone. I went through, I went through like every, uh, so from the earliest fragments we have that like poems Tolkien wrote was a teen, as a teenager, all the way through his composition and revision of the Silmarillion, all the way through. I went through The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and extracted every poem from The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, and we talked about those and looked at sort of patterns among those. Um, yep, everything, everything, everything. And well, I should say everything that exists in circulation. Uh, there, are, um, there are still a couple texts such as two of the Freaks of Physiologus, which I would really like to read, which aren't available. Um, that's the, the, the so the, there are two, uh, one of course is the, uh, the original source of the poem, which eventually became Sam's Oliphant poem um, in The Lord of the Rings, though of course first it was called Yumbo or Ye Type of Oliphant, and uh, we looked at the original from that, which is hilarious. Um, absolutely one of the most uproarious things Tolkien ever wrote. Um, and, uh, uh, and he, he, that's like the, 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 the poem where he talks about like as a way to avoid getting into hard drugs, uh, you should just drink beer instead. And, um, and Fastitakalon, the, the poem about the great turtle, which is of course not originally a poem about a great turtle, but a poem about a whale, um, anyhow, but there were two others. There was, so there was the poem about the whale. There was the poem which became the poem about the turtle. There was the poem about the oliphant, which became a different poem about the oliphant. But there were two other animal poems that he wrote in that initial uh, 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 collection. One about uh, a rhinoceros, I think. Uh, Monoceros is the title of it, and uh, the other about a fox. And and I I've never seen those in print anywhere. They're not. They don't exist as far as I know. Um, it is still my devout hope that Douglas Anderson will find them and produce them at some point, but I've never seen them. So there's some stuff like that, that but everything else, everything else I could find, uh, we, uh, we, we talked about. And it's really, really fun to look at the development of, of, uh, of uh, Tolkien's 
poetry over time. Uh, so anyway, it's uh, it's really good stuff. So all right, cool. Let's move forward. So um, I want to start off uh, addressing the issue we kind of talked about last, got sort of sidetracked on last time, not a conversation I had been planning to have uh, in our last class, um, but which I, which I wanted to come back to uh, today because I think it contains some really important principles. Uh, you know, it was sort of another moment where we sort of stumbled across some really interesting and important broad adaptation questions as we did, for instance, when we, when we were doing the kinslang and suddenly found ourselves confronted with the question of how do elves grieve over dead relatives, you know, um, uh, which was again, never, you know, one of the great virtues of doing this project, right. Is being confronted with things like that, that you don't necessarily think through when you just read the story on its own. Um, so the question, just to, to recap what the issue was, the problem is with the sleep of Yavanna. So the text says that when, after the destruction of the lamps, when, you know, Middle-earth essentially is cast into darkness and the only light other than starlight uh, in the world is in Valinor, and, the, and of course it's only in Valinor, and the light does not obviously reach Middle-earth, and so all of Middle-earth is in starlight for millennia, for a long time, um, while the most of the elves are over in Valinar. So during that time, after the destruction of the lamps, Yavanna goes about Middle-earth and she casts a sleep upon living creatures to preserve them, um, uh, be, so that they don't all die uh, after the lamps die. And then when the sun rises... Um, and the moon to a lesser extent, but anyway, so when 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 because and, and they happen pretty quickly anyhow. So when the sun and moon rise and light comes back to the, then everything that was in the sleep of Yavanna awakes. Okay, and the but the problem was that this means that during the entirety of the story of. Beleriand in season th- that we're covering in season three, and remember we're sharply contracting the time, right? Um, uh, is uh, um, in the text it's much longer. I mean, they're living again; these uh, many elves living for millennia uh, around Beleriand, which in which theoretically the sleep of Yavanna is still going on. Um, and I was arguing that this was a problem and that we needed to solve this. And my argument, my, my proposal for solving that is releasing the sleep of Yvonne, either ditching it entirely or releasing it sooner. Um, my, I, I would suggest that we lift it when the elves awaken, basically, so that the rest of Middle-earth awakens as the elves awaken. Um, so... Let me kind of back up from this issue a little bit and talk about some uh, basic principles here and why I think this is a really important issue. First, to me, more than anything else, the issue that we're confronted with here with this question is the question of kind of narrative, essentially sort of like myth versus like a, a, a sort of a novelistic narrative, right? A, a 
you know, whether you call it realistic or whatever, I hate the word realistic because it means different things to different people in any way. It makes a whole lot of presumptions. Um, so I'm never really comfortable with using the word realistic. Um, but the, the important concept um, in Tolkien's words is that the internal consistency of reality, that a good story should have the internal consistency of reality. So it should, it should work internally. Now, keep in mind... This doesn't, of course, mean that the story which has to be internally internally consistent mind doesn't have to be, in a sense, externally consistent. Uh, you can be, again, quoting Tolkien from uh, from on fairy stories. A storyteller can. It's okay for them to be the lover of nature rather than her slave. Right? You don't have to just depict what would happen. It's okay to depict marvels. Right? to depict magic, to depict things happening which don't happen in our world. That's okay. But when you do that, you still have to make the world work. It has to be internally consistent. If it's not, then you're going to lose your audience. Okay. However, uh, this, is the, this, is the, this is the problem. A lot of the Silmarillion stories, especially sort of the larger mythic concepts in the early portion, once the sort of the story of Beleriand gets humming, you know, the, this is much this becomes much less of an issue. But especially in the early stages, Tolkien, when he was writing that, was writing myth, and he was making very little effort to have the kind of internal consistency that would later on become so important to him as, for instance, when he's writing The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, And we, as we're going through, this is one of the challenges of, again, especially in these early stories, Tolkien does a lot more of that work for us as we move forward, you know, by the time we get to, say, the story of Turin Turambar, for instance. Um, Tolkien is, you know, those. There's a reason that Christopher Tolkien published *The Children of Hurin* in like a novel form because it works like a novel, right? It has been thought through like a novel. The psychology of the characters, the um, the the whole sort of world building and the sequence of events. The earlier stages of the Silmarillion process, and and by that I primarily mean the sort of the earlier, chronologically earlier, um, portions of the story, um, when the narrative is not really kind of zoomed in to that point. It's just making sort of big, broad claims about sort of what happens. What's important there are the mythic concepts, right? Um, it's not about building the kind of internal consistency that a novel like that The Lord of the Rings has. And the consequence of this is there are occasions on which when we do, when we're trying to build that kind of story, that kind of internally consistent uh, story that feels like reality, even if it's an alternate reality, it feels like a reality. It really works together. We will find that some of Tolkien's mythic concepts, which are very moving, don't really work in, in that way. And I, Tolkien himself found this. Okay, this is a problem that Tolkien uh, himself confronted. And this is—it's really interesting to see this happen. Actually, um, the Lord of the Rings is really a major turning point for this. He was sort of content with the broader mythic narrative, even as I mean, he was revising it, revising it. Even the bits that you know, the, these early bits went through many revisions. When he comes back to these stories and these concepts after the Lord of the Rings, you can see some changes. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of some of the, the the stuff that he was writing in Morgoth's Ring. 
um, which is which is comes fairly soon after he's finished writing the Lord of the Rings. Um, he calls, for instance, the late creation of the sun and moon. You know, like the whole the world is flat and then the sun and moon are created and the sun like actually you know like goes on a tunnel like beneath the earth it comes up the other side uh, and then later on you know so first there there isn't even a sun and moon and then the world is made round after that and everything um, all that stuff right Tolkien himself used the word absurd to describe that stuff right it's absurd when you actually are trying to think about the whole history of Middle-earth stretching back through to the Ainulindale, and you're trying to give it that kind of internal consistency. Now, I don't want to get into all of the details about the arguments that Tolkien was making, because I actually find those really interesting, and I don't oh, don't actually fully agree with Tolkien uh, and his analysis of that uh, in some points, but I don't want to get into all that now because it's a different story. The point is, when you're trying to make this transition from a mythic concept to an internally consistent narrative some of the stuff just isn't going to work. Um, we can't imagine, we can't always just imaginatively survive in the world as Tolkien depicts it in those myths. So, what this means for us in general is that on several, on many occasions, and with some big concepts, there isn't going to be any question of just sticking to what the text says, right? There's, it, it's, it, it's, the issue of faithfulness and just representing the text, it's not a simple question of that, right? Because if we are faithful to the text, we will end up depicting a story which does not make sense. And again, when Tolkien goes and tries to do that, he also makes changes, and for the same reasons, right? When we immerse ourselves, we'll find places um, where the, the mythology that Tolkien has described leads to uh, the the to moments when the internal consistency is just lacking. And when that happens, we have to make choices. We have to change things, right? Um, now, this brings us to the specifics, but, you know, we, we need to think about why we change. Like how, on what basis do we change? How, how, how do we make choices that we end up making? Um, what, are, what are we choosing among when we're doing this? Um, now, let's talk about the specific situation about the sleep of Yuvana here, Okay. Um, the big issue is that either case, like whether we have the sleep of Yavanna or whether we decide to get rid of or suspend earlier the sleep of Yavanna, first we have to acknowledge the fact that one way or another we have a situation which, according to science and biology, does not work. It is not possible. It is not possible for plants to thrive without you know, by starlight. Starlight is insufficient for the photosynthesis of plants. So we've got that problem on the one hand. If we don't have the sleep, and the sleep of Ivana would seem to solve that problem. However, the sleep of Ivana then creates a f- a, 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 another problem, which I never thought of in my entire life until we began thinking this through, you know, two weeks ago. And that is, what did they eat? It's funny. I was talking about this situation with, uh, my son, um, uh, I've been, I've been, we've been listening to the, uh, to the Martin Shaw recording of the, of the Silmarillion together. Um, we just got to, uh, the coming of men into the West this morning on the way to school. And, uh, uh, so we've, we've gotten through of Beleriand and its realms, um, which by the way, really supports my theory that the audiobook is easier to get through with the Silmarillion because, uh, you know, the, the, it, it just, 
it, the chapter doesn't drag. Like it, even if it bores you, which I know it certainly doesn't bore everybody here, but it's a classic problem with people reading the Silmarillion for the first time. You know, uh, Martin Shaw just drives you through it at the same pace, and you come out the other side. But anyhow, um, but exactly, Marie. The problem is non-renewable food, right? Um, so I was ta- I, w- I was talking to my son Nicholas, and my son Nicholas is like captain nonfiction. He's like a total science guy and I can barely get him to read fiction at all in general. Uh, and I, I reminded him about the sleep of Yuvana and how the, everything was dormant. And immediately, like the, his very first response to that was, wait a second, then what the heck did the elves eat? And I'm like, yeah, well, of course, this occurs to you right away. And it didn't occur to me for 40 years. But uh, yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Um, if, the, if, the, if the plants and animals are dormant, it, it, you're talking about tens of thousands of elves living off the land for millennia, right? We're talking about literally millions of elf years of food consumption happening in Middle-earth while all biological life was theoretically dormant. Um, now, there are ways that we could get around this, right? We could imagine the growth of you know, non-light-requiring growth, right? There could be... the Valerian could be covered with large mushrooms and fungi, for instance, uh, on which the elves could subsist. That's possible. Um, They could selectively kill and eat, um, you know, dormant animals, which would have... which does not really seem sustainable long-term, but whatever. Uh... It's so it's um it's difficult, right? It's very difficult. So so when I think about this, okay, um, let's think about the sleep of Yvonne. Well, no, hang on, let's come back. Let's come back to that. Okay, what are the solutions, right? What ways can we solve this problem? Um, because it's a and, and but again, what I want to focus on is to keep clear, keep clearly separate. There are two separate issues here, right? One is internal consistency of our story. The second is external consistency. That is, consistency with the laws of nature as we know them in our world. Okay? Um, I would like to posit that the former is much more important than the latter. Okay? Again, we can be the lovers of nature and not her slaves. We can invent marvels. We can... It, miracle is okay. Right? We can... We, we, we can assert that... Yeah, I mean, indeed, the whole concept of the sleep of Yavanna, right, is premised upon the idea that the Valar, Yavanna in particular, can in some way intervene and suspend the natural laws that we now, you know, take for granted in, as operating in, in our modern world. Um, so the idea of something in our story not fitting with or not working with that kind of external reality... Again, this seems to me to be a less of a big problem than a lack of internal consistency. If our story does not work internally, does not fit internally, that is to me an insurmountable problem. Okay, um, uh, and again, I, as I say, I think uh, uh, I think a a far bigger deal. Okay, so what are solutions to our problem of how do we feed elves? You know, we've got the sleep of Yavanna. We've got thousands of elves that need food for several millennia. How do we how do we handle this? Um, I, I see three solutions. Right, one, ditch it all. 
Right. Just bring in the sun and moon earlier. Just, okay. No Middle Earth under starlight. If we, if we, if we had a sun, we wouldn't have a problem. Right? We can have growth and plants, and we wouldn't have to explain that, and everybody would have enough to eat, and everything would be fine. Um, this obviously is the most radical change of the possible solutions. Uh, and it is so radical that I'm not real comfortable with it. Now, keep in mind, this is the solution that Tolkien had, right? Tolkien said that he was going to do this, that, you know, if he had in his later years actually succeeded in revising the Silmarillion, one of the things that he said he wanted to do, uh, was was make the world round from round and with the sun and moon from the very beginning, you know, from the descent of the Valar into Arda. Um, I am not suggesting that we do that because, and again, to me, doing that is too big of a sacrifice of the mythic concepts. I like the mythic concepts, right? I think that they're really important. It's what they're one of the things you know. I want to preserve. The fund, like what makes this special? What's what is the sort of the what is the nature uh, of the specialness that these mythic concepts give to the story, and how can we make sure to preserve that as much as even if we change some of the de- the details, right? If we change some of the framework, how, and and to me, oh, you know, the elves under starlight—that is such a crucial element, I think, and not to mention the existence under starlight which is important all on its own, but the effect of the rising of the sun, that sense of, and now a new age has come upon the world, right? And now from now on, this is, this is the, the, the fundamental shifting of an epoch in world history and everything is going to be different. And, and we're now moving towards the, the, we are on the way towards the dominion of men from the day that the sun rises, right? The shift from the old world of the elves, which is always associated with the gloaming and the twilight, right? Towards uh, the modern world of men. Like, that is one of the, like, fundamental underlying stories, right? Of, uh, of Tolkien's entire world, right? So I'm not, I'm not willing, um, I'm not willing to sacrifice that. So, okay. So I don't, I, so, so I reject solution number one, even though it would solve the problem and in some ways solve everything most easily. It, to me, too much is lost. Uh, it, so I don't want to do that. I see two other solutions. One, the one that I've suggested, which is removing the sleep of Yavanna while the elves are in Beleriand. Have the sleep of Yavanna end with the awakening of the elves at Quivienen. Um When the elves awake, everything else awakes as well. Um, this entails, of course, a change, right? We have to, this would, this would not work with our, with our natural laws, right? The plants would not be able to photosynthesize by starlight. But again, notice the reason I advocate this is that the only change it requires us to make, um, is a change of like with external consistency. We have to, we, we would have to say that Yavanna has in some way blessed either, either Yavanna has in some way blessed the plants or Arda, or uh, Varda has in some way blessed the stars so that the starlight is sufficient to nourish the plants. Maybe they still grow more slowly. Um, you know, the, the things can kind of still be a little bit different, but they can't be, they can't be static. They can't be. They can't be. Um, they can't be dormant. Um, 
And uh, Tony, I agree. To me, the idea of making this awakening from the sleep of Yavanna tied uh, to the awakening of the elves does show what a big deal the elves' arrival was. I th- to me, sort of thematically, mythically, that would seem to work. That the el- that when the elves awaken, Middle Earth kind of awakens to to life as well. Um, and even the idea of the sleep of Yavanna being lifted as the elves travel around. Right. Thinking of the, you know, the theme that we did in season two about how the elves like the the part of the calling of the elves, right, is to go around and bless Middle Earth. Right. It it, um, represents that. Right. It it captures that, I think, in some really cool ways. And again, the only problem is, but that doesn't work scientifically, which, again, I think is we have to surmount that we have to just say it's a miracle. Right. Yvonne and Varda work together and they come to an arrangement, right, either by the blessing of the chloroplasts or by the blessing of the stars or a combination of the two, but that's it, right? Um, internally, it works. The, the option three is to have the sleep continue um, and just find a way for, to make that work out. The things that we have to do in order to overcome this, because again, we have, we've got the two problems of consistency, right? One, the external problem of how do the plants photosynthesize. The other, the more internal consistency problem of what do the elves eat, right? How can we make them actually survive? How can we depict realistically or, again, comprehensibly uh, these societies of elves in a world in which all of the plants and animals are static and dormant? Um, And any solution that I see to that problem, to me, entails doing a very much greater violence to the story, to the characters, to the entire atmosphere of, uh, of Beleriand and of the story, right? We could, of course, make Beleriand covered uh, by fungus, right? And I say that, you know, obviously in saying it, in phrasing it that way, I am making it sound silly. Of course, we could make it covered with absolutely gorgeous fungus, right? It could be quite attractive, but it would not be the same. Uh, I cannot... Uh, th- and again, this is another place where, uh, where I think the, the inconsistency, the internal inconsistency of the myth of the sleep of Yavanna is there in the book. You cannot read the stories of, you know, the forest of Doriath and, and, uh, and even of like Melian and Nan Elmoth with the nightingales and, um, uh, just, and the green elves arriving in Osirian and... If you, like, transplant that into a world of, you know, fungi, right, it's just, I, like, it's, it's, it's a fundamentally different world. Um, so, um, this is, again, I think that we, we have to change things very strikingly, right? The whole, visually, literally the the landscape. I mean, do we really want this whole season to be them, like the elves, the green elves in Osirian traveling around in a, like a group of, you know, in vast fields of, of mushrooms and fungi, howsoever attractive, maybe, the mushrooms and fungi may be. Um, do we want to res- restrict the fauna to, y- you know, like cave dwelling creatures, basically, you know, that again, I'm not saying that this is impossible. I am saying 
this world, that world of Beleriand, is a world which to me both looks and feels vastly different from the world that Tolkien depicts in Silmarillion. Um, and I, I, I can't wrap my imagination around that. Um, and what's more, it doesn't for me solve the problem at all. That is, if we want to say, but this way it would work with the laws of nature as we know them. No, it wouldn't. That is, we still have all kinds of problems with the, um, uh, like, this as an ecosystem, this would not work. Or rather, we could not transition from that ecosystem to, like, when the, so what happens when the sun rises? In the first year of the sun, do we have all of Beleriand coated with, like, dead and rotting fungus, right, as the grass grows up uh, among it? And, like, they're squashing through knee-deep, decaying giant fungi, which now are, are you know, perishing and withering in the sun. Um, do the, you know, do we have, like, a vast mortality among the uh, the the night... Uh, you know, the, all the nocturnal creatures that were thriving under the starlight and are now being overtaken by the diurnal creatures. It's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't help. <laughs> like it's like from a, from a, from an ecosystem standpoint. And, and again, there's no way like we'd have, just as we have to explain how plants can photosynthesize in starlight. So too, we would have to explain why the dormant animals don't die. Why are they not killed off? Right, they're helpless. Why are they not killed off uh, by the other, like the nocturnal predators that are around, or by the orcs for crying out loud, whom you can't imagine would be uh, would have much discretion and would would be wildly entertained, presumably, by going around and slaughtering all the dormant animals they came across. Um, I just, I, again, to me, the the distances that we'd have to go to make that work are great, and the and what we're doing is trying to make it consistent. Um, we're trying to make it consistent with external reality. We're trying to make it like, assuming the sleep of Yavanna, how would that work? So, you know, can we develop a system that would work scientifically according to what we know? And again, that to me, that's less important. And the internal inconsistencies that it creates are very great. And the ways in which we have to deviate from the story. I have a, I have a, a, a the whole thing is just, is just very alien. Um, uh, feels alien in ways that the certainly the Silmarillion stories do. You know the early stories of Doriath and Osirian and everything else do not feel alien. Um, so let's come back to the sleep then. If we're going to suspend the sleep, I don't want to just ditch it, right? I have said, and I would continue to maintain that the sleep of Yavanna, as it's depicted doesn't work. It's it's internally inconsistent once we actually kind of come down to ground level and think about how this works. But that doesn't mean that I just want to jettison the concept. Tolkien developed the concept of the sleep of Yavanna, of Yavanna for a reason, right? Um, what is the reason? Uh, wherein, and uh, uh, David, I saw your joke about uh, my, uh, teasing me for my uh, my one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotations, wherein does its specialness consist? Exactly. Um, what is the core mythic concept of the sleep of Yavanna? And how can we preserve that mythic concept, even if we alter the details 
of how it works and when it ends. Um, and my... Uh, Good. So Marie says, Yavanna has not abandoned Middle-earth. Yes, I agree. That is a very important idea. Just the very... Marie, the sleep of Yavanna, I agree. To me, it's it's important even just for that moment. Like, And for the image of Yavanna sort of mourning, right? Um, Yavanna is the one who more than any of the rest of them mourn the passing of the uh, of the lamps, right? Because she knows that this is going to mean that all of her living creatures are just going to die without the light that they, you know, were sort of designed to depend upon, right? And so the the compassion of Yavanna uh, going around to, you know, while the rest of the Valar, most of the rest of the Valar anyway, are just leaving Middle-earth behind and setting up their new little paradise over there across the ocean, um, which remember, you know, as we talked about and as we tried to deal with in season one, I think that Tolkien's narrative suggests that's not a an obviously good choice on the part of, the, I mean, it's an understandable choice for them to make. Um, but there are arguments against. There are arguments to say that that, you know, the, the Valar make mistakes, right? That could, you know, you can make an argument that that's one of them. The the the, the, the generation of Valinor, and the, you know, the generation creation of Valinor in the first place. Um, anyway. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea of Yavanna Standing by the creatures of Middle Earth, right? Yavanna has not abandoned Middle Earth. I agree. That's a that's a huge concept. Um, can we preserve that concept? Yeah, yeah. I think we easily can preserve that concept, and I think we can preserve it in in two ways, right? One, again, that scene. We don't have to lose that scene. We can depict Yavanna going around and casting everything into sleep after the destruction of the lamps. All we would need to do is add in when the elves awaken, right? So we'd have to go back and rewrite this into the beginning of season two somewhere, you know, to, to, to make this come up somehow. Um, either in the frame or, or in the, or, or in the, the, you know, the, the first age narrative on, on its own, the awakening, right? And that moment of like that, that extra miracle that needs to happen, right? That like, and here's, here's, here's why, like, because of this, because of the blessing of Yavanna. And I, I, I kind of like the idea of it also being a blessing of Varda as well. Again, blessing not only the choroplasts, but the, but the, but the stars, right? Um, to enable them to, uh, to, to, to grow. Now, in doing that, we risk losing another thing, Right? It's not just the fact that we, we lose the sleep, because I would argue we don't lose the sleep. We still get the sleep concept, right? We just relax it earlier. So what's the, concept, what's, the, what's the consequence of relaxing it earlier? Well, the consequence of that is that the rising of the sun and moon is less, has less radical an effect, right? And that's a serious concern. As I said, one of the whole points of preserving the late rising of the sun and moon, uh, you know, the, the late creation of the sun and moon, is to have that major epic marking. I mean, the rising of the sun is one of this one of the biggest boundaries in time of of anything, right? I mean, it's there's the trees and there's the sun and moon, and those are those are the, there. There is no more significant, um, you know, divisions among different. Uh, different epochs of 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 art as history, right? Um, so we run the risk 
by relaxing the sleep earlier on, having the plants and animals awaken with the elves, or at least as the elves go around, um, we risk undermining that. And that's something that we really need to consider. Um, I think... uh, um, I think that we can manage that. Um, And the way that... um, um, the way that I think that we can manage this is to emphasize the visual effect of the rising of the sun and moon. Um, I think that we can have a very perceptible change in the, especially the plants, um, and make it clear that a new age has come as the sun has risen. Um, but I don't think that has to be so radical as total dormancy to non-dormancy. Um, I mentioned last night, I kind of tossed off spontaneously last time, um, something like flowers and blossoms. Uh, and the more I've thought about that, the more I like that, actually. You know, the idea that... Th- because there's a difference between the plants can survive and the plants will really fully thrive and that we will get the abundance of growth and the richness of growth that we get under the sun. I think that we can things can kind of be a little sparse, and that's fine. I would be fine with that. There can be really basically no flowers, right? No flowers, no blossoms. Um, again, I know, like, then, like, where do the fruits come from, and how do the, how do the tree, like, I, I, I know the function of flowers uh, in, uh, in the life cycle of plants. Um, but what I'm talking about is the visual effect. You know, the, the actual change is kind of a metaphysical change. Um, it, so there's no real question of depicting it directly. Um, rather, how can, you know, can we effectively do, provide visual cues which sort of communicate the, the metaphysical change that's going on? Can we do that? And I think, yes, yes, we can do that. Um, and the way that we can do that uh, is... Uh, um, is that it? Uh, you know, the, the things can be seen to be springing into uh, springing into this new life and greeting the sun with brilliant colors that we've never seen. I mean, there will be when the sun comes out. We could easily make the visual effect of that something like as startling as when the Wizard of Oz shifts into color. Right from black and white at the beginning, um, it's not quite that radical, but it could be kind of close to that radical, actually, um, because in the in the light that we're going to be depicting things by, which will be not nearly as dark as starlight, right? But things are going to be fairly gray. Uh, you know, we're not going to get many very vivid colors uh, in the starlight, um, and the sudden bursting of things into color, which especially would be uh, even just perceiving the colors that have been there, like the greenness of, of the, the, the leaves and the grass, um, but of course the addition of new colors. I think that that's going to be something that's going to be, you know, so the visual effect I think will be sufficiently dramatic that it will convey the world is different now, right? And again, to me, that's the other essential element of the sleep of Yavanna and the rising of the uh, and the rising of the sun and moon, um, so are we? 
would we be making a change? Yes, but 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 but, no, but do I think we're sufficiently preserving like the essential elements? Yeah, it would seem to me that that would really sufficiently preserve it. Um, and it doesn't force. And again, I certainly think that that change is much less radical than the than the changes that are involved in covering Beleriand with fungus. Um, that just does not fit to me with Beleriand's world. I, I, I can't. Maybe I'm just prejudiced against fungus. But again, I don't care how beautiful. Um, uh, I don't care how beautiful the fungus is. It's still different. It's not, it's not the same. It's not Beleriand as it's described. Uh, and I would have a hard time with that. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, I, so I think, and, and again, then, then obviously they're the bigger problems of internal consistency that it raises. So I think that we can, I, 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 I think that we can handle that problem and then be able to not talk about it, be able to not worry about it, have it not have to occupy um, again, if we have the like fungus and nocturnal creature situation it's going to come up all the time. I mean think of the things that we've described that we would have to change the visual depiction of, right? Imagine, just, I'm just picturing it, right? Picture Sauron's werewolves you know Galloping across not fields of grass towards uh, the uh, towards the phallus, but fields of of mushrooms, right? It's different. It's different, right? Uh, the hunting party that Beleg was on when he first met the orcs. What's he doing? Is he is he hunting? Uh, unsportingly creatures that are dormant and asleep, right? Is he just hunting? you know, giant bats or whatever. I, I am. Anyway. Um, again, not saying it's impossible, just saying it's different. And I find it very distasteful in its difference. It seems to me a much more radical shifting away from the text in the story than the very simple change. Let them magically photosynthesize by starlight. Um, okay. Um, Yeah, exactly, Karita. If we can have werewolves, song battles, and cursed necklaces, we can have plants growing by starlight. I agree. It does not seem to be too much to ask. Um, and we can, and it will be much easier to carry on with that without, because uh, um, once we, we have to make this the faintest gesture, like one, like a couple sentences of explanation, you know, one t- very short scene of like Yavanna and Varda blessing the plants and animals. And now we can just carry on and just tell our story and never have to think about it again. Um, instead of occasionally stumbling over dormant animals and having to explain why the nocturnal animals haven't killed them all off. Um, but uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that was all that I, wanted to say about this. Um, I think we can move on. I think that's what's what's really interesting about this, and I don't think it's just us. I mean, I don't think it's... I think we're doing the right thing adaptation-wise, but this kind of issue, this kind of question requires this much conversation and this much thinking through, and on screen, it's probably going to be like 10 seconds. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly, yeah. You know? Yep, yep. Um, that's exactly what's kind of fun about this process, right? And how much thought 
you know, goes, you know, really needs to go into all of these things. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So glad that we raised that, but I'm done talking about sleep now, but, but it's a really interesting point. And I suspect it, it, you know, this may not be the last time when we're going to come across, you know, a moment where in order to incorporate one of the mythic concepts that Tolkien depicts, we, we need to, you know, we find we have to, in, in order to, to incorporate it and make it consistent, we have to do violence to something or other. We either have to change an element of the myth itself, or we have to, uh, you know, choose again deliberately to deviate from, you know, the natural law of the modern world or whatever it is. It's going to happen. Um, I think once we get the sun and the moon up in the sky, it's going to happen less often. But uh, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's an issue, right? Um, okay. So let's go on to talk about the primary subject of our discussion today, which is, of course, we're moving on to episode seven, right? Seven? Yes, seven, um, which is the Doom of Mandos. So we are returning to the Noldor now, um, having having brought Beleriand right to the edge of war, right as Bulldog is setting out and with his orcs and uh, Sauron is getting ready to release the werewolves. Uh, to to go off to the Phalas, and we had decided, as I really like, that Tevildo and the Cat Squad are going to be uh, exploring Doriath and trying to find where the elves where the elves live, so that Sauron can know where. To, you know, so they're scouting, so that he can find out where to attack them. Um, we are um, uh, we are returning to the Noldor, who have been slowly traveling up the coast for a while, and we're going to do the Doom of Mandos, because it's just about time to bring, you know, this, we're, we're now approaching the place where their stories are going to be coming together. The Curse of Fanor, uh, so we've, we've had Fanor's Oath and the Kinslaying, now we've set up Beleriand, now we're returning to the Noldor so we can do the Doom, and then we can do the Burning of the Ships, which is what is planned for Episode 8, for the next episode after this, and then of course, with the arrival of Feanor and the Burning of the Ships, we get the stories coming together, um, not yet obviously in exactly the same place, um, but the two stories and the wars of Beleriand that are going to be beginning in the Great Battles, which start thereafter. So, the first thing we need to do today is think about the Doom of Mandos itself, because we're going to be talking a lot about the um, the ways in which the uh, different people respond to the Doom of Mandos. Um, uh, so we, I, I wanted to review the text of the Doom of Mandos, because it's worth looking at. Um, so let's read the Doom of Mandos, and then just sort of fo- do, do some thinking here about uh, what is happening here, and uh, and therefore uh, being ready to think about the role that it plays in the lives of our characters as we move forward. Tears unnumbered ye shall shed, and the Valar will fence Valinor against you, and shut you out, so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. On the house of Feanor, the wrath of the Valar lieth from the west unto the uttermost east, and upon all that will follow them it shall be laid also. Their oath shall drive them, and yet betray them, and never snatch away the very treasures that they have sworn to pursue. To evil end shall all things turn, that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason, shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be for ever." Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously, and have stained the land of Amon. For blood ye shall render blood, and beyond Amon ye shall dwell in death's shadow. For though Arrow appointed you not to die in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, 
Yet slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, by weapon, and by torment, and by grief, and your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. There long shall ye abide, and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though all whom ye have slain should entreat for you. And those that endure in Middle-earth, and come not to Mandos, shall grow weary of the world, as with a great burden, and shall wane, and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. The Valar have spoken. All right, so let's, um, let's unpack this a little bit. Um, first paragraph. What's the emphasis here in the first paragraph? Um, we have the relationship between the Valar and the Noldor is a major theme of that first paragraph, right? The Valar will fence Valinor against you and shut you out. Uh, and then they clarify what shutting out means, right? Not even the le- echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains, right? We're going to shut you out, not just in the sense that you're not going to be allowed to come back, right? We won't even be able to hear you asking to come back. So not only will you not be perma- permitted to come back, we're, we're, you're dead to us, right? We will not even hear your suffering. We know you're going to suffer, right? And we're going to leave you to that suffering because you've chosen that. That's what you've chosen, and we're going to let you have that, right? That's kind of a big deal. Um, and then on the house of Feanor, the wrath of the Valar. So notice this, he doesn't say that the wrath of the Valar is pursuing all of the Noldor, right? The wrath of the Valar. So you can characterize the fencing of Valinor against you as merely, we are going to permit you to, um, to, to experience the consequences of your actions, right? You have chosen to leave. We're going to let you go. You want to be over there? You'll be over there, right? And we're putting up a firewall between you and us, right? So you've chosen that, so don't, don't, don't come crying to us, right? Because you made your bed and now we're going to let you lie in it. Um, that's, um, that's not the same as saying our wrath will pursue you, right? So, um, or our wrath lies upon you. But on the house of Feanor, their wrath will lie from the west unto the uttermost east. That's a big deal. And upon all that will follow them, it shall be laid also. Okay, so that's the that's a big clause right there, right? Upon all that will follow them, it shall be laid also. Only the house of Feanor is chosen is uh, emphasized as bearing the wrath uh, of. The Valar. They're angry at Feanor for his oath, right? For his treachery, for his leading of the rebellion. Um, but those who follow him will also have the wrath of the Valar lying upon them, no matter where they go, no matter what happens. Their oath, the oath of the house of Feanor, shall drive them and yet betray them, right? They have laid claim to the. Uh, they have laid claim to the Silmarils, and the, one of the consequences of the oath is that they're not going to get the Silmarils. Um, 
Notice that the Valar don't say that that's what they're going to do, right? One of the questions in this, um, and indeed this is a question so often in the Silmarillion, how often... Where in this speech is Mando saying, the Valar are going to make this happen? And where is he saying... FYI, this is what's going to happen, right? You see what I mean? Um, are they? Is he saying here, we're going to make darn sure you're not going to get the Silmarils, right? The Wrath of the Valar will prevent you getting the Silmarils, like in retribution for your oath. Or is he saying, we have nothing to do with it, right? This is just, I'm just letting you know how things are going to work, right? Um it's sort of ambiguous, isn't it? It is. Well, and it so often is. This is like the classic question, which a lot of people ask. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I often kind of laugh. People will ask me this question all the time. And what makes me laugh is the sort of assumption that lies behind the question that there is a clear answer that I must know that they don't, right? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I don't know. Uh, the question is like, so how much of Turin Turinbar's suffering is due to his choices and how much is due to the curse of, Mor- of Morgoth, right, that's laid upon him uh, through Hurin? I don't know. Like, the text doesn't say. Uh, you know, it's... It, it's, it's And the moral of that story is you can study Tolkien almost your entire life and <laughs> yeah. not know the answers to these questions. Exactly. It's, uh, again, it always kind of amuses me that... that, that People do uh, so often seem to feel like, okay, obviously, like there has to exist like an answer key somewhere, right? Like I've just missed it or something or I, I haven't read it or I'm just not privy to it. And I was like, no, no, that's really that's really not how it works. Um, so here it's a little bit unclear. I think the, the sentence about the oath there, um, I don't think that he's describing what the Valar plan to do in reaction to the oath. Their oath shall drive them and yet betray them and ever snatch away their very treasures. Notice those are all action verbs, and the subject of those action verbs is the oath, right? The oath that you have taken will drive, betray, and snatch, right? That's what the, that's what the oath will do. Um, there I think he is spelling out, let me make plain to you the evil consequences of the choice you have made and of the oath that you have sworn. Um, so... Okay, to evil end shall all things turn that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason, shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be forever. What about that part? This, of course, is one of is the the one of the, the operative elements, right, of the doom of the Noldor. When people talk about the you know the the doom or the curse of the Noldor, this is the number one thing that keeps coming up. Right. Um, all things sh- uh, to evil end shall all things turn that they begin well by treason of kin unto kin and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. So there is treachery among the Noldor because the Valar made it happen. Is that true? Or is there treason among them because they have chosen treason? Like they have chosen the path of treason and so therefore it's gonna keep happening because that's the path that they have chosen and the Valar are just predicting right um 
Or, David, exactly as you say, is it the prediction that causes the treachery? Um, you know, as I was just suggesting, I'm not claiming that there's a, an obvious answer to this question, that it's obviously one or the other. Um, and there is a sense in which, um, you know, uh, I mean, as Tony was saying, with the, in the case of the Valar, isn't a prediction and a curse kind of the same thing, like two sides of the same coin? In a sense, yeah. In a sense, it is. I mean, so like, for instance, if you say, on the one hand, I am going to just tell you, like, the world being what it is, these are the consequences of, these, these will be the consequences of your actions, right? It's not like I'm making it happen. I'm just telling you, this is how the world works, and so this is what's going to happen, right? But when you're the one who set up the world to work that way, then, yeah, it's kind of like, it kind of is you inflicting it on them as well, right? You know, so um, uh, th- that's, th- th- there is an element. Uh, there is an element of it. Um Yeah. Now, Margaret points out that, that Nolor can never trust anyone because they're no longer trustworthy. Right. Again, that would be sort of the, the other element of it, right? In saying, basically, Mando's just observing, um, there is, you have changed, right? By the choices you have made, you have changed. And these are the consequences, the consequences of the choice. Um, I have a... I have a problem with reading this as simply control, like the Valar are going to generate treason among them, right? Well, I have several problems with that. Problem number one, do we really have the Valar saying first, the treason that you've committed is horrible, and we're going to make sure you keep doing it? Like, so they're going to, what, they're going to become advocates of the treason? That doesn't seem like that works. And two, of the future treason, I mean, of course. And two, it releases the responsibility on the Noldor later on. So when, you know, elves turn against each other later on, is this to say, like, well, it's, dude, it's not my fault. Like, Valor made me do it, right? I mean, I'm under the doom of the Noldor, so what can I do? Right. Being faithful uh, and not, you know, committing treason and stuff is uh, not an option for me anymore. Right. So I'm just going to have to I'm just gonna have to go do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Marie points out and she's right that the lack of trust between Fanor and Fingolfin has been long and ongoing. It's nothing new. Um, I agree. I agree. It does have a different. Remember that Fingolfin is deliberately choosing to act contrary to that in his adherence to his oath to follow where Fanor leads, right? Um, Anyway, we'll come back to that in particular. Um, Okay, I think... So one of the main points that I want to make here, I don't think it's simply one or the other... Um, I do think that this is basically... Menos is not merely neutrally warning them, 
hey, just again, FYI, this is kind of what's going to happen. This is what you can expect now. Um, but yet, I do think that there's sort of an element of that. He is laying out for them the consequences of this. There's an obvious parallel here, right, that I haven't explicitly said, but I might as well say. It's a lot like what God says to Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, right? They eat the fruit. And what does God do? God curses Adam and Eve, or at least what is often called cursing. But actually, it sounds to me a lot like the Doom of Mandos, and in some of the same ways, right? Um, is, is this God saying, I'm going to make it hard for you now? Yeah, that seems to be happening. But at the same time, he also seems to be saying, you have made a choice, and these are going to be some of the, the consequences of the choices that you guys have made, right? Um, uh, you're going to be you're going to be kicked out of the garden now, and as a consequence, it's going to be hard to get food, right? And by the sweat of your brow, uh, you know, shall you shall you get bread? He says to Adam, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, is it a curse? Is it a prediction? It's both, and I do think that we see both of these things operative here in the Doom of Mandos. Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously, and have stained the land of Ammon, for blood ye shall render blood, and beyond Ammon ye shall dwell in death's shadow. Um, for blood ye shall render blood. So, they're going to be punished? Right? Um... <laughs> That's funny. David says, David Atley says, I'm not giving you an F. You earned your F. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like that, David. I agree. Um, uh, for blood ye shall render blood. Is that a punishment? Or is that a consequence? Right? Um... There is one thing that I think, one element of um, uh, one element of this doom, which seems most clearly to me to be, and this is a consequence that we will inflict upon you as a result of your actions. Like this is something that we, the Valar, are going to be doing and doing to you. Right? There are a couple elements. The first is the fencing out of fencing. You know where it begins and where it ends, basically. Um, we're going to fence Valinor against you. On the other hand, um, your houseless, houseless spirits shall then come to Mandos. There long shall ye abide and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though all whom ye have slain should entreat for you. Their experience in Mandos, it seems, is going to be changed as a consequence of their choices. It is going to... I don't know... I don't know what uh, the experience... Like what Finway's experience, for instance, in Mandos was compared to... The, and again, I'm leaving Muriel out because she's a bad data point, but, uh, but Finway, right? Finway dies before the Doom of Mandos, before the Rebellion... He's not part of the rebellion. 
how does Finway's experience in Mandos differ from Feanor's or Fingolfin's, right? Um, Mandos is explicit about the fact that it's going to change, right? Um, and that it's going to change in the direction of uh, punishment, right? It's going to be less pleasant. You shall abide and yearn for your bodies. You will wish to get out and not be allowed out, right? At least not not right away. Uh, it doesn't say forever, but long you shall abide, right? Um, and you shall find little pity. You will cry out for pity, and you will be you will not be heard, right? We will. Not, I will not have pity on you when you cry out. Um. And yeah, Phil Fanor is still there uh, by all accounts. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Marie, I agree. Long in Valar terms and elf terms, right, is very, very long. Um, so, this seems to me not an arbitrary thing. Um, the, oh, goodness, where was I talking about this? Exploring Lord of the Rings this week. That's where I was talking about this. Um, the Halls of Mandos have always had a very strongly purgatorial flavor in Tolkien's mythology, very explicitly so in the earliest uh, versions in the Book of Lost Tales uh, and in the early drafts of the Book of Lost Tales um, that Christopher Tolkien describes uh, in his commentaries in the, in the Book of in, in, uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, less so moving forward, but still there remains that sort of purgatorial element. Um, like Fanor, still not out, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, and so in that way, it still is a, a matter of consequence, right? Um, now that you have chosen as you have chosen, things are going to be different for you in Mandos than they might otherwise have been when you when you you are slain um yeah yeah um yeah maria like exactly what it means see purgatory is tough because there are a lot of medieval images of purgatory which depict like physical torments being inflicted upon you know the the souls of those who are who are in purgatory. Um, you know the the, the experience of physical basically physicalized tortures. In any case, um, I, I don't think we have any reason to imagine. We're not we're not given here any reason to imagine thumbscrews in Mandos, but we are explicitly told that the souls in you know the elvish souls in Mandos are not going to enjoy the experience. Right? They will yearn for their bodies and find little pity. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yes, Phil, we do know that there are some of the elves that get released sooner. Glorfindel, right? Glorfindel is going to come out and come back to Middle-earth. Glorfindel in, is in, in The Lord of the Rings is the same Glorfindel as Glorfindel of Gondolin. Tolkien decides that, uh, later in his life. And Phil, you're right that the implication is that Finrod, uh, is out by the time the Silmarillion is compiled, right? It, it speaks of, of him now walking with his father, Finarfin, uh, again. Um, so, yeah, there is evidence that some of them 
um, uh, uh, that 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 some of them are out already, right? So we know that there's a variation in the length of the amount of time that they spend uh, in Mandos, and it seems to be not coincidental that those two, for instance, which we hear of as being in Mandos for a much shorter time than, say, Feanor, um, Gorfindel and Finrod, are two that made good choices and died well, right? Um, that does not seem to be a coincidence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, All right, well, let's move on to talk about the consequences. Um, again, what I see, w- one of the main things that I see here is just this question of doom, right? This, this combination of prediction and, uh, and cursing, right, that the Valar are doing. Um, let's see how we make people respond to this. Okay, so we start with Finarfin's story. Oh, wait, sorry, yeah, David, you're right. We didn't uh, talk about that. We should. Hang on a second. Uh, uh, We missed the last bit. Um, Those that endure in Middle-earth and come not to Mandos shall grow weary of the world as with a great burden, and shall wane and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. Um, David is asking, uh, does the doom imply that the elves would not have waned and faded without the rebellion? Sounds like it. Now, it's possible that this is going to happen anyway. Or rather, that is, to, or rather, it's possible that this is, would have happened in Middle-earth anyhow. And so this is only going to be an issue for the Noldor because they've chosen to rebel and return to Middle-earth. Um, you know, this could be that kind of a rider, Right. So, by the way, uh, you're returning to Middle-earth, that's great, but you should know that by returning to Middle-earth, you're going to, you know, grow weary, and you're going to wane, and you're going to become a shadow of regret before the younger race. Like, FYI, that uh, is what lies before you. Uh, um, uh, That's what lies before you uh, upon the return to Middle-earth. And... um, And therefore, it would have happened to the elves that are still in Middle-earth. Even if the Noldor didn't go back, it's only just only going to be relevant to the Noldor because they're choosing to return. Or we could read this as saying, no, as part of the curse, right? As part of the consequences of your choice. So, in other words, the Sindar and the Nandor that are still over there in Middle-earth, they wouldn't have faded. But now they're gonna, right? Because all elves in Middle-earth are going to because of the curse of the Noldor. That, to me, doesn't make much sense, David. That's that's the reason why I don't think uh, he, he's saying, as of now, the fading of the firstborn is a thing. Because, again, like, like seriously? What did the Nandor do to deserve that? Not come over in the first place? But then again, Tolkien admits that the taking of the elves out of Middle-earth and bringing them over to Valinor was a mistake by the Valar, you know, that they, that was, they, they shouldn't have done that. 
Um, in which case, the Nandor and the Sindar can't exactly be culpable for not going if like they're kind of supposed to stay anyway. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that this is uh, this is him saying we have now officially decreed the fading of the firstborn. This is him explaining, again, this is what's going to happen. You've chosen to return in Middle-earth. Therefore, you have chosen inescapably one of two ends. Um, either you're going to die or you're going to fade. That's it. Those are, those are your options. Um... Yeah. Um, okay, so let's keep going. But thank you, David. I had forgotten to address that. Um, Finarfin. Finarfin had doubts about leaving for Middle-earth in the first place, and unlike his brother Fingolfin, he did not feel constrained to go. He hoped that a voice of reason would temper Fanor's rebellion a bit. Okay, right. And so we've been depicting from the beginning Finarfin is not convinced by Fanor, right? Uh, Finarfin... Fenarfin does not rebel against the Valar in his heart. He goes, uh, but he goes at least a significant part of his motivation to go is to try to talk peep others out of going. Um, <clears throat> and he has no real desire uh, to, to, to... He certainly has no desire to leave Valinor himself. Um, does he have any intention of leaving? It's a difference between having no desire and having no intention, right? If he, um, uh, if he, um, if he has no intention of leaving, that means we're suggesting that he always planned to stop short and go back to Valinor. Do we say that, or do we say, no, no, he was, he was going to? It's only now that he changes his mind and decides, forget it, I'm not going at all. Yeah, Tony's suggesting he feels duty-bound to his siblings and children, who do want to go, right? They all very clearly intend to go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so what's his plan then? I mean, before his before he turns back, his plan is to say, I'm going to go with them into Middle-earth. So he's going into exile in a different kind of sense, right? He's going into exile from his own desire, really. He wants to stay in Valinor. So his decision to go to Middle-earth is, from his perspective, essentially self-sacrificial, right? I will sacrifice my own desires in order to... Um, I, I will sacrifice my own desires in order to help my people. What does he hope to accomplish exactly? What does he hope to accomplish? And again, I'm here imagining primarily, and, and you know, Marie, you're right, when we're trying to imagine Finarfin's frame of mind, we do have to think about it in three stages, right? Finarfin's decision pre-Kinslaying, his mindset between the Kinslaying and the Doom, and his mindset after the Doom, right? Um, those are obviously the two important turning points, the Kinslaying and the Doom. Um, we clearly know what he is... Uh, um, 
we clearly know what his decision is after the doom. My question is, what exactly was his mindset at first, and how does it change after the kinslaying? Um, Tony says to protect his people from Feanor's folly. That seems right. But again, what does that mean? Uh, That is to say, the primary way to protect them from Feanor's folly would be to detach them from Feanor, right? Stop following Feanor. Don't go. Stay, right? I'm going to come along with you so as to try to convince you to turn back around with me. Um... I could see that working. I could see it working to say that... And again, that's where I come back to the intention to leave for Middle-earth at all. Does he never have the intention? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he, maybe his intention all along is to go with them as far as they can, but he always has a point where he plans to turn back. And his goal is to stay with them all that time so as to maximize his opportunities to convince them to stay. Right? Um... Or does he actually... Because if he actually intends to go, then we have to define what does it mean... Like, what does protecting from the folly look like? To keep them from doing more horrible stuff when they're over in Middle-earth? Exactly what does he hope to accomplish? Do you see what I mean? Um... Right. I mean, I hear, Tony, I hear you say he wants to protect them, but again, like, from what? Protect them from what? Again, protect them from Fanor. But again, like, from what? Literally. From Fanor doing stuff to them? From Fanor convincing them to do stuff? Now, after the kinslaying, Maria's suggesting after the kinslaying, um, you know, so his people, the people of Fanarfin, are angry with Fanor for what they did in the kinslaying, Right? Remember, they're all related. All of the people, you know, the Finarfin's kids are related. I mean, it was, they, they, they just killed, he just killed their uncle, right? This is a big deal. Um, so, after the kinslaying, they are, but again, what? See, to me, it makes most sense to say that he does not intend, or at least after that doesn't intend, to go to Middle-earth. Um, the, on the discussion boards, they were suggesting he's decided that turning back is the right action before the appearance of Mandos. He uses the Doom as an opportunity to convince many of his own people among the Noldor to return and face the consequences of their action. Yeah. Um, so what's the turning point for him? Right. What's the turn? What's the turning point for him? The turning point is got to be the kinslaying then, because there are only the two points: there's the kinslaying and there's the doom. Right. So if the doom is not what tips it for him and makes him decide, okay, you know what? Forget it. I'm not going. Right. Um, then, um, uh, uh, if that's if it's not that, then it's got to be the kinslaying, unless he never intended to go. So do we? In which case, if it's the kin- if at the kinslaying he decides that he's not gonna go anymore, what was his original plan? How do we understand his original plan? 
And right, David, why doesn't he decide not to go back? See, now, I, that, that one, David, I don't have a problem with. I don't have a problem with him going along with them despite the fact, like, even after he's decided he's not going, right? Because, again, to me, this is, I want to stand, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn back. So I could stop right now, and I'm going to try to convince my brother and my kids and, and as many other people as I can to come back with me and to abandon this whole mad enterprise, right? Mad and now wicked enterprise. Um but they're determined to keep going. So if I want to carry on trying to convince them, I need to go along with them, right? <clears throat> so that I can, so, so as to prolong the occasions upon which I can uh, talk them into staying with me, right? So uh, imagining him continuing up the coast with them, uh, even after he's decided that he's not, definitely not going to Middle Earth, that, I don't, uh, that doesn't seem to me a big, a big problem. Um... Yeah, yeah. So, Marie, I think you and I are thinking the same thing about after the kinslaying. I'm still having a hard time wrapping my brain around how Finarfin thinks he's going to spend his time in Middle-earth. What he hopes to accomplish by going, if he, if he, in, if he intends to go. Um, uh... How does he mean to protect them? Because see, here's here's my problem. Okay, well I've got I have lots of problems, but here's an issue. Finarfin is he that strong a leader? Because honestly, the only way you're going to protect your people from Feanor's follies to set yourself up against Feanor, right? They're following Feanor's lead. Feanor says, come on, let's go. I will lead you and we're going to go attack Morgoth. And if you're Finarfin and you're saying, this is a bad idea on so many levels, right? This is, this is terrible. We shouldn't be following Feanor. You've got two choices, right? Choice number one is to not go, just to say... I'm seceding from the leader. I am, I am, I am, I am rejecting the leadership of Thanor and hoping that many others will follow me in rejecting that leadership. The other option is to say, no, I'm going to set myself up and say, no, Thanor is leading us wrong. We need to go in a different direction. I'm going to lead us in a different direction. Follow me instead of him. I can't see Finarfin doing that, especially over the head of his brother, who has said explicitly he's not going to do that, even though he would rather want to. Um, the other, I mean, the only other option would be, I'm going to go along with you as you lead everybody to doing things that I don't like doing, but I'm going to like complain a lot, right? Or say, I told you so when things turn out badly. I mean, it, it, um, I don't see, um, yeah, now David, that's a good option. David points out that the the there is an, the other alternative to a coup would be for him to be serving as a wise advisor to guide Feanor from his worst excesses to try to influence Feanor directly. That I can see Finarfin doing. That I can see him doing. So that would seem to be a good motivation. But he would have to believe that. He would have to believe that he could impact either. He's going to, you know, 
take over, like, you know, get people to follow him instead of Feanor, or he's got to believe that he can change Feanor, even over time, you know, eventually. Influence Feanor. Um, uh... Yeah. Okay, so... Right, yeah, yes, exactly, Marie. He's waiting for heads to cool, and then they don't. Right? At least Feanor's head is never going to cool. Right? Um, even in death, Feanor's head isn't going to cool. Um, if Finarfin is going to... Originally, at least actually intend to go to Middle-earth. We need to... He needs to have a plan, right? He needs to have a sense of how he hopes to live his life in Middle-earth, right? And again, I, we can we can say... I, I get the basic concept. You know, a couple people are saying he doesn't want to abandon his people to Fanor, you know, to Fanor's leadership. And I get that. But again... What does that mean? What does that look like, not abandoning them? It's either got to mean working against Feanor's leadership, in other words, setting up his own in opposition to it, or it's got to mean trying to change Feanor's leadership. If they're, if he's leading and they're following, then he's leading them, right? Feanor is. Um, so, you know, what's he got, what's he got to do? You know, what is he, and it's hard for me to imagine that fa- that he belie- that he thinks um, I like that as a two-step plan him thinking I'm going to go along and try to ch-, you know his first thought I'm going to stick with them because I hope to change even Fanor's mind right I hope to bring everybody back to sense uh, and that everybody's uh, everybody's heads are going to cool right he wants to talk everybody especially Fanor around um after the kinslaying, I think he's done with Fanor, right? I think he gives up on Fanor after the kinslaying, and after the kinslaying, he's decided he's he's he, he may be uncertain as to, when he sets out, he may not know when he's going to stop, right? Maybe he'll go all the way to Middle Earth, maybe he won't. He doesn't really know. But his the main thing he wants to stick with the Noldor, the rest of the Noldor, so that he can talk all of them and especially Fanor into some sense. Then the kinslaying happens. And once the kinslaying happens, he gives up on Fanor. He washes his hands of Fanor, right? Forget it. I shake off, he shakes off the dust of his sandals at Fanor and says, I'm not going to convince you. Now his only goal becomes detaching as many people as possible. He is 100% certain he's not going to Middle-earth after the kinslaying. And his only goal from then on is to talk as many people, hopefully all of them, if he can. Um, uh, you know, if like... Feanor and his seven sons go off to Middle-earth by themselves in a very small eight-man boat. That would be the ideal outcome as far as Finarfin is concerned post-Kinslaying, right? Um, but of course he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, um, he doesn't accomplish that. Um, so therefore, the Doom of Mandos becomes like the deadline, Right. At this point, that's the boundary. 
and he's 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 already decided he's not going to go. So he's he's you know at this point he's like okay, um, Mando's laid it out pretty clearly, right? I am not moving forward anymore. I am not going to. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back now as I've been planning to do for a while. Um, yeah, exactly, Murray. He runs out of time, and his kids none of his kids agree with him. Um, yeah. Yeah. And David, I agree. David Atley is reminding us that we can't forget that Fanor Fingolfin and Finarfin are brothers, right? And, you know, we've got that we've had the tension between Fanor and Fingolfin and Finarfin as half brothers all the way through. But we've also, I think, with Finarfin especially, one of the things I think we can depict in his character is not more sympathy towards Fanor, but more forgiveness, more pity towards Fanor, right? Um, he and Fingolfin have have had tension, right? Finarfin doesn't have tension, right? Finarfin is just saddened to see the strife. Finarfin is ready to love him as a brother. Finarfin doesn't give up on him until the kinslaying, right? And then he's done. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that you know, Finarfin would weep for Fanor just like Mandos does, or Manway does, in a sense. Um, okay. Um, Yeah, yeah, this uh, this works, and I agree. We need to, um, uh, we need to uh, remember in depicting Finarf in this way, we have him not just be weak, right? He's not just somebody who like chickens out and goes back because he's scared of the doom of Mandos, right? Um, the doom of Mandos is something which like sort of fulfills his own thoughts, right? Expresses his own feelings about what's going on. It's not because he's afraid of the Doom of Mandos. It's because he's in agreement with the Doom of Mandos that he turns back at that point. Um, and I like that. Again, it's his, his desire to establish peace is not a sign of weakness in that he's like Manway, you know, more than... Uh, more than anything else, uh, it's easy to it's easy to depict him as as merely a wuss. Okay, great question, which of course we've already raised to some extent. The question of fate and destiny versus free will here. Um, the issue of foresight is an important one. Elves also have foresight. Some of the Noldor must have felt that their fate lies in Middle-earth. Ignor, son of Finarfin in particular, will meet his ill-fated true love across the sea. Many of them will die there. Um, yes, that that sense um, uh, that sense that um, some of the elves know, some of the Noldor know that they should return to Middle-earth. Remember that we need to come back to the Season 2 stuff. That question we were asking in Season 2, I think, is still a really important one. Um, and remember, even in Theonor's speech, even in the lies of Melkor that at least partly lay behind Theonor's speech of rebellion, there are some truths, right? Um, that... It wasn't great. It was not just a good thing for the elves to leave Middle-earth. 
for the Noldor to... Ret- there is something good in the Noldor returning to Middle-earth. The way they did it and the reasons for which they did it were bad. But the idea of some of the elves of Valinor returning to Middle-earth is not a bad thing. Um, this is the irony of that moment with, this, <clears throat> with the Sindar, right? When the Sindar can't help but feel that it's a catastrophe. the Noldor coming back. I mean, right in the hour of their need, when it looked like they're going to be wiped off the map, suddenly this amazing army uh, comes in. It looks like, you know, the armies of Valinor delivering Middle-earth in the War of Wrath. It's just like that, in some ways, right? At least it looks just like that to the Sindar, um, initially, before they learn otherwise. Um, and even that similarity, I think it's not accidental. They do good. In com- good is, is accomplished. Um, at least in part. And at, le- you know, at least here and there, and at least for a time. And at least from some of them, right? And I do think that that's an interesting thing for us to, for us to, to emphasize. That some of them know. Um, that some of them know that uh, they have a they have a calling, they have a destiny. They want to go back from. But of course, even some of those things are mixed up with bad choices, right? Like, for instance, Galadriel's desire to rule a realm. Um, what's the difference, by the way? How would we want to distinguish both Finrod? Finrod wants to rule a realm of his own too, right? Interesting that you know, Finarfin's two most famous children, both of them have a power issue, right, it would seem. Both of them want to rule realms of their own in Middle-earth. Um, what's the difference between them? Finrod's desire and Galadriel's desire? We should distinguish that. We can't, we shouldn't just have them duplicate. You know, we can't have one of them being, yeah, me too, to the other one, right? Um... What should be the difference between them? I would say... um, I would say the difference... If there's going to be a difference, I want to make Galadriel's motivations be the more questionable of the two. Marie, that's a really neat way to distinguish it. Marie says... um, Goadriel's desire is more about being in charge. She's thinking more about her own power. And Finrod is thinking more about building something and finding new places. We know that Finrod is going to be, you know, he's the one who finds men because he's kind of an explorer, right? He likes to travel around and, and, uh, uh, and see lots of things. Um, we know that he brings lots of treasures as well. You know, he, he likes the, um, he, He's one who does not leave, who cannot bear to leave behind as many of the things that he made, right? They're, they're works of hand, right? So he brings more stuff from Valinor than everybody else. Um, so yeah, having having Finrod being about making and building and Goadriel being more about power. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Yeah, we need to capture 
the real moral complexity sort of both moral and metaphysical complexity metaphysical in the sense of the whole destiny and free will thing but but moral as well there are good reasons to go over there are bad reasons to go over there are reasons that are a mixture of good and bad there are some good outcomes that are attached to their going back there are some bad outcomes and they're not all lined up right as Tony says it's um, that you know there there are some uh, or no David had said this sometimes you know good decisions lead to bad outcomes sometimes bad decisions lead to good outcomes right exactly um, and I again I think that that's another thing that we will sort of show happening over time um, and uh, and yeah as Tony was just saying um, just like how the remarriage of Finway was a bad choice but things would not have been you know things would not have been as good if he hadn't made it right um, if Finarfin and Fingolfin had never been you know then the history of the Eldar would have been poorer for it so yeah yeah um, what is oh yes and the reminder I was really appreciated the reminder um, uh, Marie that Finarfin will be going to Middle-earth for the War of Wrath um Finarfin will go to Mid- so at the end of the first age, Finarfin will be there, right? Finarfin and the Noldor who are turning back will come to Middle Earth, and they will be part of the force that will come to deliver them, uh, to deliver the remnant of the Noldor from Morgoth at the end of the first age, um, and that's really really cool, actually. Um, notice how that is. Think how we can foreshadow that, right? I would like Finarfin, when he's arguing, right, when he's trying to talk people over and convince them not to go and to turn back and to... um, I would like for him to use the word deliverance, right? He's trying to deliver them uh, from this, you know, fey mood that... He's trying to deliver Feanor from this fey mood that he is in. Um... Because he is going to be leading the army of deliverance at the end to deliver them from bondage, to deliver them from uh, the domination of Morgoth later on. Um, I think that if we set it up right, we can show that Finarfin, and it's not that he's solely, but he's one of the leaders, right? He's certainly the leader of the Noldor who come over. Um, That Finarfin's role in delivering the elves of Middle-earth from their suffering later on. To see that as like a fulfillment ultimately in a different mode of what he was trying to do originally, right? The two are very similar. He's trying to save them. Um, And he fails to save most of them. Um, But in the end, he's going to come back again and he's going to save them at the end of the... uh, uh, he's going he's gonna to come back and save them at the end of the age. Um, and I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, David, I agree. We will need to think about Ivalinor's storyline of the Noldor and Vanyar. Um, thinking about how we handle that and when that comes in and how aware they are of stuff. And Yeah, I, that definitely 
that definitely needs to happen. uh, Does he mean like filling out the storyline of the people who stay back in Valinor. Yeah, well, I think it mean, meaning in like in, in anticipation and setting up for the the War of Wrath at the end. Right, right, yeah. Because yeah. they don't want them to just come out of nowhere. Right. It's sort of uh, in sort of abstract myth book form. It's great because it seems like a you catastrophe on a TV show. It just would seem weird. Right. Who are these people again, and why do we care? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we care yeah. because they're apparently saving the day, but. Yeah, a bunch of strange. Semi- also, it doesn't it doesn't take people. advantage. It doesn't take advantage of. Um, it doesn't take advantage of um, of the opportunity to create drama. I mean, there's got to be at least a few of those Teleri and some of the 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 Noldor who stayed behind who maybe aren't real thrilled with this idea, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, um, cool. What do you think of the uh, of the Finarfin plotline that we've been talking about? Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think I overall I approve of this this plotline. Mm-hmm. I certainly like I, I like this idea that he's kind of on board right. right up until the the the. Um, the Kin slaying, and then, and then sort of when Mandos draws the line in the sand, then it's like, all right, right, like it sort of brings it home, you know, like it kind of makes it clear, sort of what are the what are the real consequences of this, right, right. Um, it could be. I kind of wonder. I wonder if there's an interesting way to. So, so we 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 began the discussion with. Um, uh, focused on the sort of the ambiguity of the curse of Mandos, right? Where it's like some of the things are things that are being done, other things are things that are just you know some of the things are prescriptive, other things are descriptive. So the question is, um, uh, I, or I, what I'm wondering is if there's a way to to uh, engage with that on screen, mm-hmm. you know, to have some people, some people sort of. Some people be outraged at all these horrible things that right. uh, the Val the Valar say they're going to do, or 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 as the show goes on, the things that are happening. Like there should be some people who blame everything on the Valar, right, right. And then there should be the other people who 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 remember this and realize that this is really just them, you know, um, sowing the the or reaping the the the. The seeds um, that they they sowed during like the kinslaying and the oath and stuff. So, but I, I I think I think that would be really nice to engage with that on screen. I don't know exactly what the right way to do it is, but um, but I think we want I, I think we want um, to 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 kind of guide the viewers to toward this interpretation um, rather than just kind of leave it hanging. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think some of this, you know, it's going to be hard because, you know, it's, it, we will have to be, you know, the, I think that uh, the script of this episode would be really tricky because it's going to be a lot of talk, right? You know, we get the doom and then we get people talking and deciding what they're going to do. And there's a lot of people whose voices we want to hear, but, 
you know, just having a bunch of people standing around talking could be kind of dull, so we'd have to be careful about it. But that's where we'd get it, right? I mean, that's where we, you know, we could impart show. And then, of course, we'll be coming back to it, as the narrative does, right? Continually allude back to the doom of Mandos um, off and on throughout the events that happen later on. So having people do that sometimes is no, would, it won't be difficult to do. Um, yeah, David, I agree. Kelgorm and Kurufin and Karanthir, I believe, should be outspoken in their anger at Mandos, right? Blaming the Valar for, and saying that the Valar are just trying to, you know, uh, are are working against them, you know, are just uh, uh, being, you know, cruel to them, uh, arbitrary. Um, others, like some of the people of Fingolfin and of Finarfin would emphasize the culpability, right? It's no, this is no better than you deserve, right? Because of what you did. Um, let's, uh, let's go on our next slide here. We're talking about some of the individual, uh, folks. Um, Fingolfin. How do we handle Fingolfin's mindset? I want to, let's let's go back and think that through the same way we did with Finarfin. Um because I think we need to we need to think through the same pressure points, right? What is Fingolfin's mindset pre-Kinslang, his mindset post-Kinslang, and his mindset post-Doom? Well, okay, so pre-Kinslang he's gotta be well, okay, so he was estranged from his brother, and then and then they got back on the same page, um, and he's on board with you know following Feanor and kind of sort of all that stuff. Yeah. Then, then his father gets murdered. Um, so I think he's like gung ho. Um, he's gung ho to go to Middle Earth and take vengeance on Morgoth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense, right? Um. And then we should kind of see a growing, a growing sort of kind of a dawning realization about what exactly that's going to entail right. with each sort of with each bad thing that follows right. the right. slaying and the, the curse. I don't think, I don't think. I mean, maybe we can show some some deliberation or some doubt in him, but I think he should be presented as sort of stubbornly stubbornly insisting on keeping his promise. Right. Right. Um, yes. There has to be another factor, though. I agree that that's an important one, and I like that. But at the same time... the Okay, the keeping his promise, right? His promise to follow where right. Feanor leads. Because uh-huh. at some point that oath by itself is insufficient, right? Like, he didn't call down the everlasting darkness on himself if he doesn't follow, if he doesn't, you know. And it's like, there's got to be, because it's it's not hard to say, all right, Fingolfin, when you said that you would follow your brother, you had no idea what that meant, right? After you see him commit atrocities, really, are you still morally obligated to go along with him? And and seriously, you're going to be like, well, like, you know, he's off, like, biting the heads off of babies, but I've got to go bite off the heads of babies with him because I said I would. Like, come on. Like, who would think that way, right? I mean, at some point, his own moral sense would have to trump his, you know, blind, unthinking promise, right. you know, to follow his brother. Uh, okay, so 
Do we want? Here's the question: Do we want something that rec, that something? Do we, do we want it to be something that recommends him, like a, a good thing, or or kind of are we okay with making him, you know, sort of kind of a heel here, where like like one one possibility would be. So, okay, just off the top of my head, what are some possibilities? Possibilities might be um, that sort of the Gladriel angle, which is like latent pride. Mm-hmm. Like he gets he gets caught up in the vision, you know, the vision of realms and, and yeah. mastery and all that kind of stuff. Another possibility is maybe he is just straight up focused on revenge. Right, right. Um, like I think revenge would be enough. Yes. Yes, but do we really want Fingolfin's Fingolfin's arc to just be a revenge arc? Not just. It can't be just a revenge arc. Mm-hmm. I think it's also got to be a redemption arc. This is uh, David Atley was saying this. David Atley, you're on fire today, by the way. Um, your comments have been awesome all day. Uh, I think what changes is the blood guiltiness from the kinslaying. Right. So at the beginning, yeah. So he's promised that he'd follow Fanor, but he also kind of wants to follow Fanor because he's cool with the revenge thing. Right. His dad was just killed. He can get by. He doesn't feel the same way about the Valar that Fanor does. Right. So it's not like he 100 percent endorses everything that Fanor says, but the idea let's set out and return to Middle-earth and take vengeance on Morgoth uh, for what he did. Fingolfin is is behind this idea, and he promised to follow Fanor anyway, right? So that's his mindset pre-Kinslaying. Unlike Finarfin, he is resolved to go. He wants to go, because his desire to take vengeance uh, on Morgoth outweighs his desire to stay in Valinor. But things change after the Kinslaying because he is himself guilty. And I think that he would be informed largely by shame and guilt, he doesn't turn back to Valinor because he doesn't feel like he should... Like Basically, I think that there should be an element after the Kinslaying where he is himself voluntarily going into exile. Like He feels like he should be exiled um, and that he doesn't deserve to return to Valinor because he was guilty in the Kinslaying. Um, it wasn't his idea, right? It's different. Um, yeah, it's, it's his, his guiltiness is different from Fanor's guiltiness. Uh... But st- but he feels it much more keenly than Feanor does. Um, so yeah, and so I don't think it's, and I think it should be not like fear, right? Not like I don't want to go back to Valinor because I'm going to get in a super boatload of trouble if I go back because of the kinslaying. I mean, like that's 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 an issue, but he doesn't fear that. Punishment. It's that he's preemptively punishing himself, right? I don't need to return to the Valar for the for the for judgment to be passed on me for my for the crimes of which I'm guilty in the kinslaying. I'm passing judgment on my. I'm sentencing myself to exile and banishment. Um, that I think is the mind. It should be the mind. At least a significant portion of the mindset of it. He still wants vengeance, right? So he's still willing to go along to fight. It's not just, he's not just punishing himself. He's not just seeking death. Um, because of course you can see how this 
shame, this desire to punish himself, helps to set up the suicidal duel with Morgoth later on, right? But I want to be careful because I don't want to make his challenge of Morgoth merely a form of suicide. That, I think, is a really important undermining of that moment. It's easy to read it that way. You know, that Feanor is just killing himself and Morgoth is, is, his, is the weapon by which he commits suicide, right? But that's, there's more to that there. It's not just, it is not only, despair is involved, but it's not only an act of despair his challenge of Morgoth later on. But again, we can see how he is willing to get... There is an element of he is sentencing himself to exile and eventually to death. And he's going to seek that eventually, very actively. Um, but, uh, but, but again, there will be more to... And, 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 and the desire for vengeance. So we, we, we can already see how the two motivations that we've given Fingolfin will work together very nicely when it comes to his challenging Morgoth to a duel later on. Right? His desire for vengeance and his desire to, to, to punish himself. Right? To, to attempt to atone, if possible, uh, for his crimes. Um, but... Uh, but again, I, I still want there to be more. There needs to be growth between now and when he come, when when he challenges Morgoth. Obviously, we don't need to write that story quite yet. We're not there yet. Um, but I think that these things set, set set him up for it pretty well. I like that. Um, the real question is going to be, and we don't have to answer this today. We can answer it next time or the time after that. Um, is what's his mindset like after the burning of the ships? Why does he continue going then? How do we, how do we uh, sort of wrap ourselves around the attitude of Fingolf and, and the rest of them to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to cross the grinding ice? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, And, but I also, returning to the... I don't want to totally downplay, though, the importance of his oath. That's important, too. Right? Um, it just, to me, it seems like it can't be... Um, to me, it seems like it can't be the the um, only factor. You know? Him being like, dude, I'd get out of this if I could, but I just can't. Yeah. Interesting. Uh... uh Tony says he thinks he crosses the Helcaraxa because uh, he wants to kill Feanor, right? That would be an interesting thing to to bring. I, I, I think we should make that involved. Absolutely. Um, he's going to turn away from that, right? Um, well, he won't get the chance. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think there should be some people there, certainly, who are speaking very uh, outspokenly for... Um, who are speaking out very forcibly, right, for uh, uh, just going to take vengeance on Feanor. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, We talked about Galadriel and Finrod some. Any of the others that we need to think about? Turgon. Fingon, I think we can leave for now. We don't need to feature uh, Fingon very much 
around the Doom of Mandos, he's going to have his real moment. Um, you know, he and you know we get the him and Mithros moment, setting up the him and Mithros moment uh, later on. But Turgon, I think we need to uh, we need to think about. Um, In what way? Where they are in their decision oh. to move forward and why. Why are do we, they... Uh, do we run the risk of, of uh, cluttering this by featuring too many characters with too many different nuanced uh, reactions? Well, again, this is a situation where... Uh, this is a situation where I don't... Um, uh, I don't think all these things have to be depicted in this episode. I just want to think it through because these are characters that are going to be involved in, and, and we need to, uh, I would like to, I would like to make sure that we have their developing stories coherently in our minds. Cause even if we don't bring them into this episode itself, <clears throat> it's going to be relevant to what we do with them later on. Right. So they may or may not get lines in this episode, but we should still think we should still have an idea of what their stories are. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially those that are going to, and that's why I'm particularly worried about, or not worried about, but I'm particularly concerned with the people who are going to become uh, really important later on. Um, and for whom <clears throat> these kinds of decisions, like the spirit in which, the spirit in which they return to Middle-earth is going to have a big effect on what they do when they get there, right? And the kind of attitudes they adopt to... The attitudes they have to the rest of the elves, the attitudes they have towards the war with Morgoth, right? Um, these are all going to be strongly influenced by what frame of mind they undertook all this uh, stuff in in the first place. Okay. Fingon and Turgon. Turgon wants to go forward, and yet he was one of the ones who loved Tyrion most. Uh, yeah, Marie, you're right. Things are going to change for Turgon when his his wife's going to die in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, Tony is saying we could bring... Uh, um, we could bring Arathel into it as well. Arathel wants to follow the sons of Feanor, and Turgon is m- sort of motivated as a, as a protective big brother, in part. Um, Idril, David, she's been born. She has to have been born yet, because she doesn't have much more time to get born, because her mom's going to die pretty soon. So um, I do think we... Um, Idril can still be small, though, can't she? Can we get pictures of Turgon carrying Idril across the Hill Caraxa? That would be yes. That would be cute. Uh, that would be cute. Here's <laughs> Marie or Tony. Marie's response is Turgon making decisions for Arathel since Valinor. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why you grow up as a as a you know 
rebellious sister who likes to hang out with the bad boys because your overprotective older brother is always trying to keep you out of trouble. Um, yeah. Now, Marie, I know that Idril isn't a toddler anymore. We can't really have her as a babe in arms across the Helcaraxa. Um, yeah. Anyway, because she did appear. I, d- I did remember her appearing as a child uh, late in season two. Um, but anyway, okay. Here's the other reason I singled out Turgon. And as Turgon? Turgon is very different. He has a unique role among the elves, among the Noldor in Middle-earth, because of his connection with prophecy. There is a doom about Turgon. Um which comes from the early days, the very early days of the, the, you know, the writing of the fall of Gondolin, the first Middle-earth story Tolkien ever wrote, um, in which Turgon is prophesied to be the one who can bring about the destruction and death, ultimately, of Morgoth. Um, that if he brings the Gondolindrim out to war and attacks Morgoth, he will win. That's the original message that Olmo sends to Turgon in Gondolin, which Turgon ignores, and then Gondolin falls. Um, but there's a... There is a kind of... There is an element of prophecy. You know, there's an element of, of portent around Turgon, um, which will eventually come through to Eärendil, right? You know, uh, even just... Yeah, so... Uh, I like the idea, you know, David about, uh, D- David Atley was suggesting perhaps Turgon's desires to bring about renewal in Middle-earth. Something, uh, um, I think that Turgon should be wanting to accomplish something. We talked about having a sense of calling. Right, people having a sense that like they're call- like it, it is their job to go back to Middle Earth. That they have a role to play in Middle Earth. I would like to make Turgon the center of that concept. Right, um, Turgon feels that it is, and this is, and therefore the death of his wife in the crossing of the Helcaraxa is like extra tragic. Right, he, I think we should make him, and and so Dave again thinking about not cluttering this episode. I think that this should come out in the episode where they're deciding to cross the Helcaraxa, right? Turgon, I think, should be one of the most outspoken people in favor of going over, even though they have to cross the Helcaraxa. And his motivation is not revenge against Feanor, or even revenge against Morgoth exactly, but because he has that, like, um, you know, Sam Gamgee-like sense that he's got something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not behind. Right, he needs to return to Middle Earth. It's important for him to return to Middle Earth, and then that argument—you know, his own words—that uh, it is important, it is a fulfillment of his destiny to return to Middle Earth. Those words will f- taste very bitter in his mouth when the crossing of the Helcaraxa leads to the death of his wife. Um, but yet, there's still the destiny to fulfill. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony, uh, Turgon should be the most pious and spiritual of the third generation Noldor. Uh, yes, yes, that's that's exactly what I'm kind of seeing with Turgon. Um, 
Uh, yes. So again, we don't need to necessarily have him speak here in this episode, but I wanted to, that, that was kind of rolling around in my head there and I wanted to uh, make sure that we touched on it. Okay. Um, Dave, do we have the, do we have them departing in the ships at the end of this episode or do we save that entirely for next time? Where does this episode end? I do not recall. Well, no, I mean, I'm asking what should we choose because... Oh, what should we do? What should we choose? Well, so, I thought we previously... I thought you were asking what we previously outlined, but who well, cares what we previously outlined? Yeah. We can do whatever we want to. <laughs> exactly. Well, the outline has the betrayal happening next time and the burning of the ships. But we could... I, I can I, I can imagine... It would be a good last scene, right? To have somebody come bursting in, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, maybe... Finarfin and Fingolfin are still talking, right? Somebody bursts in and says, the ships are gone, right? The the ships is gone yeah. and Feanor has taken them. Um, and then next in the next episode, we, it, we that might mean us having to go backwards, though, if we want to show Feanor and them making the decision to go. But maybe we don't. Maybe we can catch up with Feanor and his sons at sea, basically. And... Um, and reveal their, you know, sort of Feanor's motivations. Um, and then just have Fingolf and, and his people trying to cope with the fact of their betrayal next time. Um, do you like ending it with the, uh, the sailing? Let's see. I'm trying to, I'm doing my mental, I'm mentally imagining this. Mm-hmm. Like, I like, I like the idea of, um, I like the idea of ending with, like, an ominous, there's Feanor and his sons sailing off in the ships, and maybe Fingolfin is standing on uh, on like a cliff overlooking the sea, you know, kind of, you know, with a hardened face, look on his face, watching them sail away. Right, <coughs> right, right. Exactly. No words spoken. Yeah. Just... Yeah, yeah. Pregnant um... with tension. Yes, yes. And yeah, yeah, no, and Maria's reminding us that at this point, at the point of their sailing away, only Feanor realizes that this is a betrayal, right? Mythros thinks this is going to be a ferry service across the ocean, and that, you know, they're going to be sending people back to go fetch, you know, the others after they land there. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's. Uh, we don't have much time, but that's, we, we, we've got a we've got a B and a C plot to talk about. But we have very little to do with them. This is the the obviously this is the main big issue. But I don't want to leave them wholly behind. So let's acknowledge them briefly. The B plot of this episode is the attack on the Havens. Uh, so the first stage of Sauron's strategy in the south is uh, to have he's got his army of werewolves, uh, which rushes in and attacks the Falathrim on the coast. Um, so we have, uh, the, you know, our, uh, Marie's outline here um, to remember that we, we should probably start with Thingol's messenger offering Cirdan's people a safe haven, right, which they refuse because they don't want to leave the sea. So they could take refuge in Menegroth, but they choose not to. Uh, we have them not being taken by surprise. So we should... We're, we're not wanting to depict this as 
they're here, the elves of the Phallus, minding their own business, and now all of a sudden the wolves descend upon them, and you know they are caught at unawares. We want them knowing what they're facing. They they have made the choice to stay, expecting an attack. Uh, and we could show them even like the the preparations that they would make. Presumably, like there are only two there are only two possible reactions, right? for the Philothrum. One is to fortify the town, to pretend to, to, to prepare to defend it. And the other is to load up the ships, to prepare to, prepare to run away. And I think they've got to be doing the latter, right? They're not even really planning to defend the city? Or do we want to, we, do we want to show them um, uh, attempting to, to defend the city and failing? Should this be just a retreat, or should this be a, a defeat of the Philothra? When you say defeat, do you mean wiped out? Well, no, not an extermination, but they flee to their ships only because they lose the battle? Or is <coughs> fleeing to their ships plan A? Oh, that's a strategic retreat? Yes, yes. Um, I'm inclined to make going to their ships plan A and not have it be um, just a result of their defeat because I think it lays uh, an important um, emphasis on what's important to them, right? The city doesn't matter. It's the ships that matter to them. The city doesn't matter to them that much, right? So it's not like we shall only... like The ships are the vehicles by which we save our lives when our city has fallen. Is very different from... We, we can take or leave the city, right? It's the ships that we care about and we really want to go and and, uh, uh, and, and occupy the ships. Um, David says if their plan for defense is to flee, why not flee ahead of time? Well, that's a good question. I guess the... the it would be like, well, they don't want to leave their cities if they don't have to, right? So they figure that they will stay hoping that perhaps, you know, they're not going to get attacked, or at least not yet. Um, but they're prepared to leave as soon as they, uh, as soon as they um, do get attacked. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there would have to be some kind of battle. I agree, Tony. I mean, they... Um, because they need to give everybody time to get to the ships, right? And the werewolves are fast. So if the werewolves just come pelting into town, they're not going to have time to run to the ships. So they're going to have to set up some defenses in order just to delay the enemy long enough to allow everybody to get to the ships. Um, yeah, they do need a rear guard. Exactly. Um most or all of which would die, really. I mean, so we need a self-sacrificial rear guard, uh, essentially, in order to to give people time to leave. Um, And that's... uh, We don't have any characters we can put on that detail. We don't have any named characters with Kyrdin, right? He's on his own now. He's the only named character among the Philothrim? That's pretty much always true. Yep. Uh, do, 
do we ever in the length and breadth of Tolkien's corpus ever get a named philosopher other than Kierden? I don't think we do. Um, nope. So yeah, so we don't have a we don't have a character that we can uh, sort of make the captain of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm, I'm. I think I'm on board with the uh, strategic re- retreat idea. Yeah. Yeah, I I, can't, I think we want to. I think we. I think we. We kind of want to. I think we want to portray uh, these folks as actually pretty competent. Yes, I agree. Well, beleaguered, um, not winning per se, but not like just like they should be like the one like they should be the one spot of sunshine amongst all the other bad stuff that's going on. Right, that they succeed in. They succeed in escape because, yeah, I mean, the situation is right. On the one hand, um, they can't. I mean, as as uh, as as Marie put it, and of course, Marie is reminding me to tell you know these 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 things that she's putting here on these outlines that Marie has created for us are uh, from the discussion board. So these are all these are not not all her ideas, uh, but yeah. um, but anyway, uh, as we have there at the end, the Falathrim can't fight a battle on land, but Sauron can't fight a battle at sea. Um, they don't win exactly, right? I mean, they still lose. They're driven out of their city, and their city can be burned to the ground. But they, um, but they're not defeated either, right? You know, this is not the, the you know we don't we don't we don't get a slaughter of the Falathrim, and yet they're helpless. They're helpless to do anything. Um, all they do is like, stay offshore and. Um, you know, maybe go over to the Isle of Balar or something. Um, exactly, Marie, it's more of a stalemate. And that's an interesting situation, right? Because on the one hand, it shows the Philothrum are taken out of the picture. They can't influence events anywhere. They, they're, they're powerless to come to anybody else's aid. And yet, it's not a complete victory for Sauron, right? He's able to kind of neutralize them, but he can't, he can't destroy them. He can't defeat them. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so on the one hand, again, Sauron's plans are going according to plan, but, but he fails in succeeding his, uh, he fails in achieving his real end, right? Which is just to destroy them all. Um, what's their longer term plan? Just to wait it out. We'll get on our boats and we'll put out to sea you know, a little ways and we'll stand off the shore and we'll wait. And then when you leave, we'll come back or do they go somewhere? Do they stay? And if they go, where are they going and why? Where do they plan to go? It's an interesting question. Maybe they have a retreat prepared. Yeah, you got to think that if they're planning to go to their boats, they have to have thought that through. Do they have a destination, right? Well, and I mean, if we're going to have a if we're going to have a plan A and we're going to make it a strategic strategic retreat, yes, I think we want to. We I think you know we want to see that all the way through. We don't want it to be a strategic retreat to the boats and then they're like, well, now what? what? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, we're going to make it a strategic retreat. We might as well make it a, an actual strategic retreat where there's a strategy. Exactly. And, uh, but we, we need to get them north too because we wanted mm-hmm. Kyrdin to see the light of the burning of the ships from a distance, which means we've got to get him up close to the Firth of Dringist. Um, 
which, uh, as we can see, going briefly back to our map here. So we're talking about the the Philothrium, right? We're talking about down here, right? This is where they they stand off from the shore. Um, so we can't have them sailing down to the mouths of Syrian because that's the opposite direction of where we want them. We want them up here, right? Uh, not so close that they run into Fanor at sea, right? But uh, um, they're moving from here. So we've got to get them up into the, you know, like the greater Nevrast area, you know, somewhere around Vinyamar or something in here so that they can see the burning of the ships at Lamoth. Um, so that's where we need to get them. But of course, they don't know that they need to go to see the burning of the ships. So what's their plan? Um Maybe, maybe their plan is to try to scout the enemy. Maybe that's the plan that they like. They're gonna so they're gonna try to send messages to Thingol. So like so, Thingol says, "Hey, Kierden, come hang out in Doriath with us. Right, you'll be safe here in Menegroth." And Kierden is like, "Nah, we don't want to leave our ships. We're gonna stay by the sea." Um, but we can accomplish something here, right? So we'll be safe because we can, if they attack us, we'll just get in our ships and we'll take off. But we can accomplish something too, right? Not only can we save ourselves, we can also, if, if that does happen, then we'll leave Eglarest and we'll head north because we know the enemy's coming from the north, right? So we'll head up to the north because we'll still be safe as long as we stay on our ships. We'll, you know, we can always run away. So, um, but we'll go up the northern coast and we'll try to see if we can find and maybe, you know, maybe they're, they're even thinking about landing and exploring and land a little bit, and but you know, but still staying in range so they can, um, they can, they can run back and 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 get to their boats and find out like, what is the state of the of the northern realms? Yeah, Tony, exactly. Can we circle around behind the orcs? You know, is it possible? Um, you know, maybe even they have, you know, could they have fantasies of you know, the army comes down and attacks them and then turns and goes to Doriath and they circle around and then they can come in from behind and, and Thingol can attack them from the front and they can, you know, they can they can envision this whole, you know, uh, sort of how the Near Nithar Nodiad was supposed to go kind of strategy to take the orc army in the middle or whatever like that. And the werewolves are unexpected. They're, they're, they, they expect an orc army to march upon... Eglarest, and instead this like troop of werewolves uh, come in, um, and so they're they're just trying to figure out. Wait, did the orcs come? Like, let's see if we can see if there are any orc armies, you know, along the northern coast. Has he occupied? You know, because remember, I was suggesting that these the the mountains, uh, the arid Wethrin here, should be something like a frontier. That we I know in the book that there were gray elves that were settled in Hithlum and around uh, Lake Mithrim. Um, and I was suggesting we might not want to do that. And this might be a good effect of that. This land is kind of terra incognita for them. So he's going up here and being like, uh, all right, you know, what's going on up here? Let's scout up here. Um, are there orcs here? Maybe we can, maybe we can, uh, we can figure these things out. And yes, Maria is pointing out that this unnamed island here by the Firth of Drangist could also be a place that they have found and could be a place where they're uh, planning to take refuge, to set up a new base here on this island where they figure they'll be safe because uh, uh, Morgoth has no boats and so won't be able to get there. Um, and then from there, they can explore and maybe counterattack or something like that. So yes, if they're set up at this island, that would put them in the right place geographically to be able to oversee, uh, that is to, to 
oversee in the sense of overhearing, which of course does not have the same connotation now, does it? Um, to uh, to see from a distance the burning of the ships. Uh, I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Um, yeah, cool. So yes, David, you're right. That would allow us to leave the civilians, right? We'd be able to weave most of the of the philothrum on the island here, um, you know, setting up like a refugee camp, but then allow Kierden and, and, and some of the others to like do some scouting missions, right? So they don't have to having to take all the women and children with them, right, when they're going and, and exploring. Um, so yeah, that works. That's good. <clears throat> okay. All right. See, this map is so useful. So glad we have the map. All right. Where were we? Uh, now, the C-plot <clears throat> is Bulldog's campaign in East Beleriand, and in the C-plot, very little is happening. We just need to kind of remind our viewers that Bulldog and the orcs are in Eastern Beleriand and marching down um, because they're going to be encountering the Green Elves uh, before too, too long. Um, and so we have uh, the orcs kind of frustrated because there's nobody over there. Most of the elves, all of the elves really, except for the um, green elves, have fled into Minigroth. Um So they're not meeting any resistance, but they're kind of looking around. Um, I, li- I mean, I certainly think if Bulldog were leading an army of orcs through there, he would certainly instruct them to destroy stuff. They'd be setting fires, they'd be cutting... Uh, trees down. Um, we want to lay special emphasis on the orc uh, on the orc mischief of cutting down trees because, of course, we're going to have we're going to have tree beard issues uh, when uh, we get to the the battle with the green elves, right? So we want to set that up. Um, I'm not sure about this last point. So this last point is a suggestion that Sauron sends them a messenger. Uh, to instruct them to put the orcs to work doing something useful. Um, I don't know that they're going to be building fortifications and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, maybe. That would certainly keep them occupied for a little while, because we don't want them attacking the green elves right away. Um, We can't have them tearing down through East Beleriand at a sprint, because they'll get to the green elves too soon. We don't want them to be fighting the green elves still for two more episodes. It's not until episode nine that we're going to get that battle. So um, we need to occupy the orcs. And so having them fortify somewhere would be a way you know, to, build a, to build a base. Where would they build their base? If you were Bulldog, you're coming through the March of Mithros. Would he build his base at Himring? Which is, of course, where where Mithros is going to build his base later on. Maybe Mithros takes over Bulldog's base. Yeah, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Yes. Although, do elves really want to live in an orc hold? <laughs> Marie hates this idea with a fiery passion. <laughs> Marie hates this idea in all caps. Um, well, no, I mean, they wouldn't be living in the orc hold. I mean, Mithros would find the orc hold there and burn it to the ground and raise it, and then he'd build something new. Uh, but, I mean, it's the obvious defensible position here. I think they have to come... We have to depict them over... Uh, Bulldog coming in over here. Um, not here through the Pass of Aglon, because if they come in through the Pass of Aglon into Himlad... 
uh, and then up around, you know, into Dimbar. They're, they're just, they're coming straight down into Doriath, and we don't want the orcs to go straight into Doriath. The orcs have to go down to Assyrian, right? Um, and even if we're going to move Amon Ereb, which is partially obscured by our caption here, even if we're going to move Amon Ereb a little, little more northerly, and as we kind of talked about cheating uh, the map a little bit in that way, Amon Ereb is where the battle, the final battle, the final stand of Denethor uh, and the Green Elves is going to be against the orcs. Um, but in any case, it's got to be over here on this side of Beleriand, somewhere near Osiriand. Mm-hmm. So the orcs have to come through over here, um, you know, on the, the, the sort of eastern, uh, closer to the mountains. So somewhere in this area has got to be, I mean, as we can see, the map is empty in this area. I mean, we could make something up. But why would they go to a random spot in the middle of the plain and be like, here, we're going to build defensive fortifications in the middle of the prairie just, you know, for reasons. Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, they could come down to the intersection of the rivers, you know, Little Galleon and Greater Galleon, and decide they're going to fortify this. But orcs using a river as a defense seems like a unorkly thing to do. They don't like rivers. They're not comfortable with water. Um, so I don't think they're going to be setting up a camp. I mean, it makes sense strategically, uh, sort of. It sort of makes sense strategically. It makes sense strategically as a defensive spot. It doesn't make sense because they're moving south, right? And from that camp, it'd be very difficult to go south. But honestly, like, the hills up here are the place where Bulldog would want to set up his advance camp, right? Because if the hills by Himring are his base, then from there he can go straight south into Osiriand, or he can go, you know, and, and he can or, you know, he can also go southwest into Doriath. So from that place, they would command the whole thing, right? Um, yeah. Um, and it's okay, Marie. If you don't want to actually put it on the hill of Himring, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna force you to have Bulldog build a defensive structure on the spot that Mithros is gonna is gonna live on later on. It's okay. We don't have to have it on the on the hill. Uh, it could just be more, you know, over by the mountains or something like that. You know, maybe we have it over here. Um, uh, maybe even the mountains around Lake uh, Helivorn, though. Again, the water thing. Uh, but it's but anyway, these hills uh, by Magor's Gap really seems to be uh, the place that somewhere in this region seems to be the logical place. So showing Bulldog to be establishing a, a establishing, so we just need one scene, right? One scene of the orcs in the hills building, uh, you know, probably wooden palisade. Cause they're not going to build anything super permanent. A kind of a wooden palisade fortification, um, which would be their base camp, and then him sending some troops of orcs out just to, 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 to raise a ruckus, find as many orcs as they, as many elves as they can and kill them, and they're not finding very many, um, uh, and to see them hacking, hewing, burning, and doing unpleasant orc things to the environment, um, uh, would be, would be, would establish us. I like also having them focused up here on the map because then they still have a goodly distance to travel because, again, we're not going to have the battle for a couple episodes here, so we don't want to move them too far south too quickly. Okay. All right. I got to go. But let's... um, That was good. I just have questions for next time. That's it. We're done. 
Okay. First I, of all, I like that. Our every one of our podcasts always ends that way. We're like, talk, 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 talk. Oh, gotta run. Oh, gotta run. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Um, yeah, it was a really great move to schedule another broadcast after Silm Film because imagine how long we'd go on if that didn't happen. Otherwise, we'd go on forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, okay. Um, so first, let's not forget that our next session will be on Friday, January 5th. So we have a three-week gap. Two weeks from now, of course, would be uh, the Friday between Christmas and New Year's, um, and I'm going to be traveling, and, uh, and I... I assume I may not be alone in that. So um, we're going to do Likewise. it th- the following week. Yeah. Friday, January 5th uh, will Where be our next going, episode. Corey? I'm actually not going far. I usually go to Phoenix um, where my mother-in-law is, but we're not doing that this year for Christmas. So I'm going to be here in the snowy North and uh, we're going to be taking the kids skiing. So I'll be, I'll be somewhere up in a mountain. Actually, no, I will be somewhere sitting, sitting in a warm ski lodge or in a parking lot with my car <laughs> idling <laughs> while my children ski. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be on the road in any case. Um, but I will be back for the next week. So that first week of the new year, Friday, January 5th, we will do a session. Um, and then we'll do another one two weeks after that, because the week following that January 12th, I will be in Texas for Texmoot. So, uh, okay. Your questions for next time, three weeks from now, the burning of the ships. Why does Feanor burn the ships? I want to, I want to really, you know, this is most, most of my questions are about a lot of the same kinds of things that we were talking about today. I want us to think through, to get into the heads of these different characters and really make sure that we can understand what are they, why are they doing what they're doing, right? What does this mean to them exactly? And how does that fit into the overall themes that we're developing on the season? So why does Feanor burn the ships? What exactly is his motivation? And what is he thinking and, and what does he say, right? Now, how does Fingolfin discover he is betrayed? He can't see him from there. It's across the sea, right? Uh, no one is going to come back to tell him. How does he know? He knows, but how does he know? And how are we going to, how are we going to handle that scene on screen? How are we going to depict his discovery that he's been betrayed? And then getting into his head, why does he continue? I said we want to talk about that, so next time I want us to definitely think about that. What are his motivations? Um, does he does he is does he want revenge against Feanor now? Are we comfortable with saying that's that's like a, a big new motivation for him and partially what he's got in his head as he's crossing the Hell Caraxa? Or do we wanna <clears throat> do we are we not comfortable with that? We want to do things differently. Um, how is Fenarfin received in Valinor upon his return? We should get his getting back to Valinor. Um, and I think we should do that in this episode. How is he received? Um, is this the prodigal son returning home? You know, do the Valar come running out and fall upon his neck and give him a cloak and a ring for his hand and, and slay the fatted calf when he returns? Or not, right? Do we get something else? Um, do we get it? Does he, does he have a trial, right? Uh, what happens with Fenarfin when he, retur- when he returns? Um, how does Círdan respond to the burned ships? What does he think happened? Um, what conclusions does he draw? What thoughts does he have? What conclusions does he draw? Um, uh, and how is that going to steer his own actions? How does that fit into the story, both of Círdan's plans and of Círdan's, like, developing plans, like his, his reactions? And then, how about how about Gothmog? How are we going to depict Gothmog? We need, to, we need to kick the northern wing into gear, Right as Feanor and them uh, 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 
land. So we need to have we need to have a good Gothmog scene uh, when we uh, we have them kind of processing this and uh, uh, showing what's going to happen up there. So, all right. Thank you very much, everybody, uh, for joining us. Um, I have to go now, but those that's plenty to think about for next time, and you've got three weeks to think about it. Um, I've uh, really enjoyed working out some stuff about the Doom of Mandos and thinking this stuff through today, and uh, I appreciate all of your help, both now, during the, uh, <clears throat> during the session, and of course on the discussion boards since last time. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year uh, to everybody, and we will see some film uh, folks in 2018. Uh, so, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.